What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. Anybody else have any questions? Yes. Yeah, so mm-hmm. uh, it was fascinating the the backstory, you know, how we got to where mm-hmm. we are. Um, but then, you know, and I've heard it said, you know, that obviously this, there was race involvement and racism and inequality and all that stuff. <clears throat> but um, like, it's just a like when we reach that point. It just feels like it's the boogeyman thing that we're never going to ever fix. So what was it like for you? I imagine you probably already had that sense that race was tied into it, and it was very deeply tied into it. Like, I mean, does that crush your spirit? Like, to think that, we're, I mean, we might be able to rip out all of the, these, these pipes and they could bankrupt us, but it, it's not going to address, like, the core issue, which to me still seems like it's very much alive. Yeah. Even in our own communities, yeah. yeah, you know. Right. So, I mean, and, and so if that's the case, like, it just why isn't this going to happen again somewhere else in some other form? Right. Like, what was it like for you to see how deeply entrenched the racism, racism piece of this was? Yeah. So he's asking, what what was it like to wrangle with how 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 deep the the racism and other intractable issues are in the story? How does that Way on me. Honestly, I'm, I feel kind of still in it, so I don't actually don't know totally how to answer the question. I think. Um, Let me ask this. How how is the community? How are people in the community realizing that they are in some way responsible for those who've been there for a long time? Right. How is the community dealing with it? Um, well, I think I, I think some for for many in Flint like a lot of what has been revealed is not necessarily news to them. I think it's, you know, questions they've been asking themselves and reflecting on for a long time now. Um, and uh, what this is, I think, is like a different kind of um, awakening for people outside of it to see how serious this go, how it took this very particular shape. So basically, like what, I mean, I think what this is revealing is like, how structural racism works. This is what people mean when they say it's a system, you know, because it perpetuates no, no matter what the intentions are of any individual actor. It's de- it was designed a certain way. It was designed so, you know, we created infrastructure inequality by saying, you know, people of color, you can only live here and here, and, you know, white people, you can live over here, and you're setting it up so that those homes are worth less. You know, homes, you know, like you're setting that home. So those homes are worth less and they're going to, um, especially as it accumulates over time, likely be served by weaker public services. And, you know, you're going to get on your downward spiral, spiral. Right. And um, 
And it has in Flint and nationally, it's a great triumph that, you know, a lot of the way that um, was enacted are, is no longer illegal. Like you cannot have, you know, um, you can't have you can't have um, the policies that you used to have before. That's great. But we can just look around us and we can see that we're still living in a separate, unequal society. Segregation is still here. In fact, it's worse, you know, like when people have measured it. It, it, it just it just is. How did that happen? You know, well, like it's because we like because we never we never approached integration <laughs> with as much vigor as segregation was created. Right. So we never we never got into like untangling that as excitedly as people created it. And as time passes on, um, neglect becomes as aggressive as of a force as anything else, you know, and we and we and we're getting into this, you know, um, and we're getting into um you know, you know, just we just we were just encountering the life and death stakes of this again and again and again. What was going on in Flint was emergency even before we got to the water crisis. It was. Why did we need something that exploded in the national news the way it did to really start feeling uncomfortable with it? And to be clear, like, you know, there's a lot of you know questions about, like, why didn't the state do something sooner or the EPA or, you know, why didn't somebody, you know, the government like. You know, hear what these residents were saying sooner. And I think that same question goes for a lot of us. It goes for journalists like myself. It goes for um, environmental groups like universities. Those are universities. And like, like, you know, like there's a lot of us that I think have um, learned to tune out what makes us uncomfortable. But until we really reckon with this stuff, you know, we learned this in the 60s and we're learning it again now until we really reckon with like what creates urban crisis. We're not going to get through to the other side. We're just not. You know, that's why we're dealing with some of the exact same problems they were wrestling with back when those cities were exploding. So context of white supremacy, Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Monday, March 23rd, 2020. So I have been told amidst all of the chaos and confusion, toilet paper purging that has been going on over the past, I don't know, 10, 15 days or so. Um, acutely over the last week or so, I realized, wow, we have broadcasted every day since Wednesday. Like, wow, you have been on the uh, counter racist grind, hopefully with constructive information. Repeat the same thing that I've been saying the last few days. Uh, we have so many serious things uh, happening around the world serious problems uh, that need to be addressed. Uh, We do not want to be wasting time. Uh, So if you're not getting constructive information uh, from the cows, please invest your time and energy elsewhere. We should not be wasting time. That was the case before we got into all this viral pandemic. Uh, Our broadcast today, I think many folks worldwide are familiar with the Flint, Michigan lead water poisoning. Um, Lots of attention over the past five years or so. There have been numerous uh, documentaries and huge reports. Uh, The New York Times has done big series. Democracy Now! has done big series. Uh, It's just been talked about. I think the black, uh, excuse me, Flint Lives Matter uh, hashtag 
became pretty widely uh, recognized. Michael Moore had a great sound clip. He's a Flint native uh, white man bowling for Columbine and all those documentaries uh, had a great line where he said it was a hate crime. He was on uh, Bill Maher's show not too long ago. It was during the 2016 election season. He called it a hate crime. Uh, what happened uh, in the Flint, Michigan area, uh, just in case folks are thinking Flint, Michigan, that's old news. You know, what are you talking about that now? We're in the middle of a global pandemic. What does that have to do with what we have going on right now? Well, check the Metro Times News. Uh, that's news site out of uh, the Michigan area. What do they have? As coronavirus spreads, Detroit to restore water to thousands of households offer a moratorium on shutoffs. We heard some of this during uh, Flint, I believe. I'm not going to read the whole report. to just give you a, a sample. It says fears of coronavirus outbreak have prompted the city of Detroit on Monday to begin. Oh, bump me down. Bump me down. Let's try that again. Uh, city of Detroit on Monday to begin. Fears of coronavirus outbreak have prompted the city of Detroit on Monday to begin restoring water to thousands of households and offer a moratorium on water shutoffs. Mayor Mike Duggan and the Detroit Water and Sewage Department made the announcement at noon Monday as the coronavirus rapidly spreads across the globe and U.S. as of Monday afternoon. There were no confirmed cases in Michigan, but health officials say it's only a matter of time. More than 3,000 households were without water because of delinquent bills. It was immediate. It wasn't immediately clear how long it would take to resume services. Health officials have emphasized that the most effective way to combat the virus is frequent hand washing. And they have a picture. Uh, I think these look like uh, a black child's hands. Uh, their wet water is dripping off. Zoom in on the hands as though they're washing uh, their hands or maybe cupping their hands to grab some water. They look like a black child's uh, hands. But I thought this was very important and very much related to what we're talking about today because, wow, water shutoffs in Flint, Michigan, big problem. Part of the crisis uh, was talked about quite a bit in the book that we are going to uh, discuss on the broadcast for today. Uh, I saw details about the book uh, we're going to discuss. Uh, there were a number of interviews and of course you cannot talk about uh, the Flint tragedy crisis uh, without talking about racism, white supremacy, that Flint Lives Matter hashtag, uh, a deliberate play on the Black Lives Matter that was and continues to be very popular in talking about racism, white supremacy. Uh, the full title of the text, we're discussing the poisoned city, Flint's water and the American urban tragedy uh, published 2018 so this is a more uh, recent text not even two years old yet uh, real pleasure to have our guest on the program to discuss this book implications for racism white supremacy and even connections to what is happening right now with the global pandemic uh, she is an author and journalist joining us live our guest for the evening Miss Anna Clark Miss Clark you're with us I am here. I'm very glad to be here. And it sounds like we're going to get right into the thick of it. I hope so. Uh, with all of the seriousness happening today, we definitely don't have time for uh, pussyfooting. Uh, but with that, before uh, we get to the Poison City, um, well, number one, for our guest listeners, uh, I'm sure for a lot of folks, this is their first time uh, hearing from you. Just if you want to give like a brief intro, who you are, the work you do, anything you think would be helpful for folks to know about you. Sure. Well, uh, like you said, I'm a journalist and author. I live here in Detroit. I grew up in Michigan, um, uh, but in a little town on Lake Michigan, several hours away, and eventually made my way here where I've been since 2007. And um, 
I've always loved writing, um, but I think uh, being here in the city has given me something to write about, <laughs> especially over the last decade plus. I mean, this is, I've, I've come to write about, um, most of the time I focus on uh, how cities are made and unmade and what it means for people and uh, how the weight of history is kind of chasing us at the heels at every turn. So um, I, uh, I'm a freelancer, so I write for many different kinds of publications. Uh, the, uh, this, the book, The Poison City, is, of course, my biggest project, and I was really grateful that it gave me some time and space to uh, to dig into a story that even in a longer article you just can't you just can't bring everything together lots of details in this one lots of details I would encourage <laughs> uh, listeners uh, whether you've read the book or not as we kind of go through this in the Flint situation while we uh, when uh, <laughs> Neely Fuller Jr. and others, when they say that the primary method for maintaining the system of white supremacy racism is deception, wow, we mm. Flint, Michigan, wow, deception, wow, deception, and sometimes it won't necessarily be deception like what's your name? And I say, Oh, my name's Harry. And my name's Harry. sometimes <laughs> now there's a lot of that too, but sometimes it'll be conception. This is a big one with white people. Justice she used to ask that question all the time, concealing information from non-white people. That is mm-hmm. a huge one where it'll be, Oh, I think there might be rat poison in your sandwich. Now I could tell you this before lunch, or I could wait <laughs> until two weeks and say, Oh man, are you feeling bad? I think, uh, Rat poison might have been in your sink. <laughs> that sort of deception. Oh, man. Flint, Michigan. But before we get to the poison city with the whole epidemic that's going on, uh, what is the situation in Michigan? Are you all on lockdown? Can you, you know, we, just today, literally just today, the governor uh, gave us a shelter in place order uh, since the article that you read there have been uh 1300 uh plus cases that have been confirmed uh, of course those are the ones that have been tested one of the ongoing problems is complete information we we don't totally know how where the virus is because we 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 don't have enough tests to detect it and um so yeah we're you know after a few weeks of like going through the same series of cancellations and everybody pausing and learning to sh- what shel- uh, uh, social distancing means and all that. We got to the point where right now, like only essential workers are, you know, supposed to be going outside and doing stuff right now. So um, it's pretty uncharted territory. I mean, it's, it, it, I, I like that you brought it up right at the outset because there are so many of these common themes of bodily, bodily integrity and civic trust and, uh, social inequity and vulnerability and racism and, and all the, all these kind of issues that are coming up to play, coming, coming up to play in this coronavirus case, uh, crisis, but just magnified at this global scale. <laughs> it's pretty astonishing. Um, it, it's, it's kind of a, it kind of makes, drives home that, you know, we really got to learn our lessons before we keep, or else we're going to keep repeating the same mistakes. Words are important. That is a big one. I'll I'll come back to that, whether or not these are mistakes. Uh, But I think it's so important with the coronavirus. And this is astounding. The the exact word that you use. This is astounding for so many reasons. And when I read that report in Michigan and I'm in Seattle, Washington, that is not an anomaly uh, in the United States. I'm sure throughout the world. But they've had a number of different here in Seattle where they've said, hey, 
No more evictions. Stop on that. Uh, We don't care what your water bill is. No more shutting off water. And all of this is serious. And great. That's, you know, we should take this seriously. This is a global pandemic and that's in everybody's uh, the health interest of everyone. And would seem like a just thing to do given the circumstances. But what I've said consistently, if we're in a system of racism, white supremacy, and we're about practicing justice, that's something that could be done anytime why would we have to wait until a global pandemic to say oh wait a minute this is an emergency we can't be shutting off people's water this is a human right why can't we do that why couldn't we have done that in the middle of the flint situation did you want to interject miss clark i yeah because you're exactly right like it just it shows what's possible when there's political will all these things that were supposedly too much to ask for to um are suddenly becoming possible and with water in particular activists especially in detroit and flint have for for many many years been advocating for moratoriums on these widespread uh, shutoffs for all kinds of reasons, and literally just I don't know two and a half three weeks ago at this point, um, the uh, the call for a moratorium on shutoffs in Detroit was rejected both by the city of Detroit and the governor of Michigan on the grounds that uh, the widespread shutoffs like did not pose a threat to public health, and then. A couple of weeks after that, in fact, these shutoffs were <laughs> suspended because of a threat to public health. Right? You know, like they, it was. It was this. It, there was this remarkable juxtaposition where um, uh, what they were how of of, of of their bluff being of the bluff being called. It seemed like <laughs> deception. What I said again deception, and that's so important. When we have the will, I think that's how Mister Fuller says it that having the ability to produce justice, but not the will. That is so important because I think so many people, including myself, have a very hard time understanding white people could stop practicing racism. Like when I say right now, so it's Monday, March 23rd for me, 523 PM Pacific daylight saving. They could stop racism right now the same way they did with the water the same thing they did here in seattle and other places doesn't have to be a whole lot of wrangling and oh we don't have the money and oh it's just not possible we could do that right now start practicing justice they don't want to they like it like this that is the only logical conclusion one can come to get that question in before now we can pivot to the or i guess one more one listeners have been asking folks do you personally know anyone miss clark who has the virus if they have it, I don't know it, but that is a good question. Um, uh, if they have it, excuse me, I, I don't know it. Uh, but it's, it, you know, it's one of those things where it feels um, a matter of time, just given how things are going. Okay. All right. Uh, let's see. This, the number for listeners, 605-313-5164, the code 564-943. Pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Folks in Michigan should definitely not be spectators for this broadcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. For folks who have not seen you, uh, even though I posted a number of the interviews, videos you've done, uh, you are a white woman. Is that correct, Miss Clark? I am. Grant, uh, we ask all of our guests on the program, uh, as I've said already, words are very important, especially when discussing uh, the boogeyman, 
racism, white supremacy. Uh, I use those two terms as synonyms and I use the same definition for both terms. Uh, the definition mm. I use is as follows a global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Uh, do mm. you think such a system exists? Do you think that definition is accurate? Well, I think, of course, of course, racism and white supremacy exists. And I like how you're making those two uh, synonymous. Um, I think it was uh, not something I grew up understanding or being able to articulate, or at least understanding in a in in the true in in, the, in a way that was true, right? Like I was raised in um, a small white town uh, that, and uh, I grew up thinking that was normal, and that having a small, uh, largely African American town um, uh, right across the river was normal. Um, and over time, you know, when you get out in the world, when you learn, when you have some consciousness raising, you learn that this isn't the normal way of things. It's a structured mechanism of power passed down across generations, right? And um, and it's very unsettling, but it's a fact. And we have to talk about it. I think especially white as white people, we have to talk about it because uh, ignoring it causes harm, is, is an active force of harm. Much obliged. I do want to make sure uh, that I get a answer to that question because that one is super important about the definition. Just do you think that definition is accurate? I, I think repeat. so. I mean, I honestly, yeah, honestly, like I, I mean, I feel like it's one I want to mull. You know, I don't want to be glib, right? And I, and I, and, and but I, but I, but I, I think it's maybe it's good if you uh, restate it again. But like, I, I, I do think, yeah, just that would be helpful. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Uh, one more time. Racism, white supremacy, synonyms, definition, a global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. I think that's fair. I think that's very true. I mean, I think it's. I appreciate how it has a how you're contextualizing it globally, and how you're contextualizing it as uh, classifications based on white and non-white, uh, which points to the very constructed nature of how we uh, how how we've historically navigated race. Much obliged. Uh, our pre <laughs> our president is calling it the Chinese virus global system oh of racism uh you oh wait a minute before i get to the poison city um i've been asking our white guests for some years all the way back to about the time the flint crisis erupted nationally uh there was a report published in a national journal by a non-white author he was talking about racism and he said uh often many white people are greatly and sincerely pained by racism, but rarely are they pained enough. Mm. 
I looked at the first portion of his sentence. Now, woof, particularly in the context of Flint, do you, as a white woman, around the white people that you've been around, your studies of the Flint situation specifically and just in general, uh, do you think it is an accurate statement, truthful statement to say that a substantial, a significant number of white people are sincerely and often greatly pained by racism? Do you think that is an accurate, truthful statement? I think they would be if they paid attention to it, <laughs> but I think most don't. You know, I think most most folks uh, find ways of deflecting the flicker of discomfort or pain that might, you know, be blooming when 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 they're forced to pay attention to it and quickly bat it back, right? And find ways to kind of pat it down, like oh, that's just all in the past. Or people used to like it used to be a racist society, and now we're much better. You know, find ways of like um, immediately. Um, comforting, comforting themselves, I guess, self-soothing so they don't actually have to experience, uh, that pain or discomfort. Hmm. Well, see if I can ask again, if we could, so if I could get a direct answer, so are white people, a significant number of them, do you think they're greatly sincerely pained about racism? Well, I think they're not because they don't pay attention to it. That's that's what I mean. Okay. Okay. So the answer no because and you're saying the answer is no because they don't pay attention to it. That's hmm. that's that's the privilege I think that's being closely guarded. Hmm. Okay. Whew. We'll we'll deal with that as as we roll with Flint cuz I I would even look at the context about white people. Do they know that this majority black city? Do they know? that this water is messed up? And if so, are they greatly pained about it? That seems to be a big theme uh, of the book. Did the officials, Governor Snyder, did these individuals know that this majority black city, I'm sure they knew that, uh, did they know that this water was poisoned uh, and just piddled around, twiddled their thumbs for a long time? Or were they greatly pained? Like, man, we need to get rolling. Where are these filters at? Let's get the bottled water. Let's get these pipers. Let's go, go, go. We got to... Sincerely. That was clearly not the case. <laughs> it was it was so dramatically not the case that uh, for a minute it shook people up about it. But I think we've already gotten to the point where people are sort of forgetting or think it's over or think everything's done or think it, or, or there's also this kind of narration that it was just a technical problem. Right. I've seen this sort of overriding um, of people uh trying to describe what happened with Flint, a sort of rewriting or revising of history um, that it pretends that it was just a problem of water treatment and damaged pipes, just a technical problem, and, and being very blind to the fact, uh, very willfully blind to the fact of, of how and why, first of all, <laughs> they were put in a position to have uh, bad water in the first place, and second of all, why and how they were actively ignored for uh, a, not a little time, but a long time, like actively, not just ignored, but uh, dismissed and belittled when they uh, brought their concerns, when they did everything they could do to make themselves visible. Like it was, it, it's remarkable. It is like, wow, indeed, as you were saying earlier, it is remarkable. And I think it's important for that not to be forgotten because I can already see uh, how people are sort of remembering what happened in in a much more um a much a much 
a much more blase way. And I think that's I think that's dangerous and I think it's an insult to people in Flint. Pussyfooting about white supremacy racism that is very, very common. We read James Lowen's book, Sundown Towns. Mm. That is a major component of white supremacy racism. When these type of things happen, you go back and you obfuscate one of our favorite words. Uh, Speaking of not obfuscating, we had a white author on the program a few weeks back, Andrea Freeman. She wrote the book Skimmed. And in fact, I can even read a sentence from your book and tell you the direct connection. So the sentence Mm. or the paragraph I'll read. According to one research team, the water switch correlated with a serious drop in fertility for women in Flint, a majority black town, and a 50 percent increase in fetal deaths in an echo of how women once ingested led to control their reproduction. An estimated 275 fewer children were born than expected during the emergency in a majority black town. Now, we had another white author on the program. Her name, Andrea Freeman. She wrote the book Skimmed. Uh, it was just published more recently than your book. And her book is about how the formula industry had been marketed to white women in the 20th century, how they began to market to black customers, black moms, uh, to switch them from breastfeeding to formula. And she, in her book, she talks about all of the enormous health benefits of breast milk. She uses the metaphor liquid gold uh, in the book and talks about how breast milk can adjust to the child's needs and all of these enormous properties. It's so great for the child and the uh, consequent risks with uh, formula uh, for black children and all of this and and talking about all the current health disparities uh, for black children and high infant mortality rates and maternal mortality rates and all of that. And I asked her. Is this chemical and biological warfare? If you're deliberately switching Mm. black moms from breast milk to formula and you know it's bad and you know it has health consequences, is that chemical and biological warfare? And she was kind of taken aback. She said she hadn't thought of it that way and she didn't answer the question. Also, she had a lot of information in her book that would lead one to think, wow, it certainly sounds like it could be if they did this knowingly. I'll come back and ask you about Flint. Is this chemical and biological warfare? What happened in this predominantly black town? I think it was a violation of human rights and uh, I'm thinking about the biological warfare Um, I mean I think think one of the problems with this one of the problems with uh, uh, one of the reasons why um, people have been sort of sidestepping any kind of culpability for what happened. And just to be clear, uh, not one person, not one has faced consequences for what happened in Flint. There's been, at this point, uh, all criminal charges have been left aside. No, no one's been in jail. No one was even like seriously fired. You know, it's remarkable. And I, and, um, and it's, and it's an outrage. And one of the reasons I think that that has been happening is because there's been this sort of like, Hiding behind a passive, hiding behind a, this sort of guise of passivity. So I think with, I'm thinking about the phrase like biological warfare, and I think that's usually when that's usually described, it's like this, like meant as this like active thing, like oh somebody went to the river and like put poison in it, right? And but uh, and so people are saying like no, we didn't mean to poison people. We didn't add lead to the thing. You know, um, there's this sort of like the passive, the, the the fact that it wasn't this like 
dumping of a vial of some toxic substances like is 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 giving people this illusion of innocence that I think is false. Um, and so, I mean, so I think so I so I, I, I see your point. I can see I can see why that like you can see why that um, can kind of come down to. Um, uh, why that can certainly be seen as a as a as a kind of biological war- warfare thing because it's, we're talking about like water here like you literally can't live without it you literally can't live without it and um and the, and 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 this didn't and this happened and and there are people who died there are people who have these like lifelong consequences because of this sta- because of the actions of the very agencies that are supposed to protect public health um not a, not some corporation that was blinded by profits or whatever. Like um, it was it was it was by the by the very, very it's very disturbing. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna argue the biological warfare comparison because it's it's experience the experience of it isn't different than if it's an uh, um, if it's somebody pointing. Uh, pouring a vial in, uh, in it or somebody ignoring uh, the rising. Uh, toxicity of the water over time this i'm just pointing out a a pattern because this is not just you this is with a lot of white people it's the flint situation the pussyfooting when it comes to racism that was why i started with that clip from your book tv interview where the gentleman asked the question and he said it's kind of the boogeyman uh we don't want to talk about racism that's one of the ways where i've seen where white people particularly when they talk to non-white people we're just a direct answer on the question. If you don't think it's chemical and biological warfare, no problem. We can go on to the no, next question. Just, I don't mean, honestly, I don't mean to avoid it. I'm, I'm just thinking it through, you know, I was just trying to think it through. I mean, of course it is a racism, you know, of what happened there. And I, I hope the book makes this very clear of like why it's this inevitable. It, it's this, it's a it's this, it, the an, inevitable um, result of the, of racist actions, both now and, and in the past, like perpetuating and accumulating over time. I mean, we have, we have created whole communities of people who are, 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 are effectively in what like one writer calls like sacrifice zones, right? And it, it's, it is, it is absolutely a racist system that makes that so. Just pointing out for listeners, didn't get an answer to the question. She says she's mulling it over, so I'll check back in later. But that is a pretty consistent pattern, both with white people not identifying other white people and acts as racist, and then with the chemical and biological warfare, uh, which I think is really for both of those. Switching from breast milk to formula, what happened in Flint, what's happening in Newark, lots of different situations. Um there, uh, there are a number of books on the Flint water situation. Probably more coming. Yes. Uh, probably. I mean, I know of uh, three that are out right now. I certainly hope there will be more. Um, certainly, because there's more different. There's the more the better, frankly. Right. And and also, I hope we have. Um, I'd look forward to the books that come out in like ten. 15, 20 years, right? I mean, one of the, one of the great unknowns is what, what happens to these kids, right? Mm. Um, what happens to this city over time? I mean, there's, there's so much that's, um, that's unknown and that's part of the haunting legacy of what happened here. And so I really look forward to the books that are written then, hopefully written by them themselves, right? You know, because I think that's, um, it's these kids' voices that I think 
deserve to be heard especially. Mm. Yeah, there probably will be some great anniversary books and, and such that will be forthcoming. Experiments, I'm reminded of that word a lot. That was even used. They're using us as lab rats. That was what one of the residents said. Mm-hmm. Experimentation. Mm-hmm. Get to see what happens. Uh, again, our guest, Miss Anna Clark, author of The Poison City. Uh, what was your primary motivation uh, for writing The Poison City? Well, because it was a story that mattered, and if I could, if I could help communicate it to people who needed to hear it, I wanted to be able to do that. Um, and uh, I, I started out writing. I, I mean, I've written. I, I mostly write articles, right? That's my full time job. And um, I'd written articles about what was going on in Flint, and it was it was just so clear that there was just first of all, I couldn't, I couldn't bring forth all the pieces that were important, all the ways this was related to historic patterns of inequality, um, uh, in, in as fully as I wanted to. And, you know, when, uh, there was this, like, even in this like surreal moment where it seemed like the whole world was paying attention to Flint and there's all these, like, there's even like presidential debates in the city. It was like, it was this crazy spotlight. There was that, um, the Oscars so, uh, white thing that happened. Like they went to Flint the night of the Academy Awards, um, back in 2016. I mean, it was, it was, Flint was like at this like center stage. And yet still, I think there was a lot of confusion about what was really going on and um, misinformation even or especially from folks who lived nearby, frankly. Um, anyway, so I, I hope to offer some clarity about like what exactly went on, what do we mean by the Flint water crisis, and how is this connected to um, our country's history of very purposefully creating separate and unequal cities um, over time, and, um, and, and how, we've, how, we've, how we have concentrated vulnerability by race and in geographical spaces like this and how this is, um, how, how what happened here uh, is this terrible and awful manifestation of that. Context of white supremacy. Uh, we had a white author uh, on the program towards the end of 2019 and he wrote about some of the same issues uh, just a tad south uh, in St. Louis, uh, Michael Brown Jr. Yeah. and his killing, but broader issues. He was talking about the school system uh, and a lot of the same problems uh, that we're talking about here in Flint. And he wrote this book and he does not use the term racism. And I pointed that out to him and it was a little bit easier because I had an e-version of his book. So I could go through and do a word count and say, yeah, you're, you're not using the word <laughs> racism. You're using, you know, discrimination prejudice these other descriptors is there a reason uh and he you know disputed about it you don't really use the word racism uh in this book very much either uh it's here infrequently and a lot of times that it's here it's quoting other people uh who use the term racism you use segregation and integration those type of terms was there a reason uh that you avoid using the term racism it's not an intentional thing at all. I mean, I think it is very much is racism, and I think the story of it, I think paying attention to what happened and showing what happened makes it clear. But if it's not articulated as specifically as it needed to be, it should be, you know, because it is racism. I mean, it's just plain. 
Did you have any reservations or did any of the Flint residents question you saying, hey, this is a majority uh, black town and you you as a white woman writing this story, we have concerns about that. Are we just going to be kind of left out again? Was that question raised? Sure. I mean, I mean, yeah, that, that can, I mean, it, it, and of course, and it's a completely rational concern. Um, I, uh, when I started out uh, doing this, I was, there was lots of reasons for people not to trust me. I'm not from Flint. I am a white person. Um, I'm not affiliated with any particular institution that they might trust or not trust, you know, like a news organization or something like that. Um, uh, people would often ask, you know, quite specifically, like, what's, what's your angle? What's your, what do you, you know, what's, what's your approach? And I'm like, um, and I'm, and I would say, honestly, like I want, you know, I would tell them where I was starting from, you know, trying to understand what was going on with the water crisis specifically with how and why, um, uh, we've created separate, separate and unequal cities because of racist policies. Um, and I could show articles that I'd done in the past that was, you know, attested to that, to that view. But I was also really open. I was like, what do I not know? What should I know? What you tell me what the angle is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here to listen. Um, and, uh, some people responded to that and felt like they wanted to talk. Some people didn't, uh, I would check in. I was glad to have the time of the book to, uh, kind of reconnect or touch base over, over time and, uh, see, see where things have changed or not changed. One thing that helped was to, um, you know, I, I stayed in Flint for extended periods of times. So a, a very nice couple gave me a place to stay and, uh, that helped build relationships, uh, with people, um, you know, who might not know me and have all kinds of suspicions about me. Um, but I could say, Oh, I'm staying at these folks' house, and they're like, oh, well, I know them. <laughs> we'll give this a shot. It was honestly, and some people never did, and some people never trusted me or wanted to talk to me, and that's fine. I, I totally get it. I mean, there's, um, it was, it's, it's, it's very reasonable, and m- my job is to just be as, approach this as humbly and honestly as I can, and just try to listen and learn and uh, tell the stories truthfully and completely as I can. Were you staying with a white family? It was. It was a white couple. And uh but they, they have a lot they've been there for a very long time and they have a lot of relationships that that helped. Okay. Okay. Uh you had uh a lot of great information. I'm kind of abbreviating the story because I feel like listeners know quite a, it's been so much information on the uh Flint situation in terms of the lead poisoning. I'm gonna get into some of the details, but I feel like folks probably know a lot of the meat of uh what happened with this incident. Uh you talk about the Flint elected officials uh quite a bit, the emergency managers uh in Flint. That's an important point that I want to get to, uh, and their mm-hmm. involvement in switching uh, the water and then the lying uh, about the water and whether it was contaminated. You had a great paragraph. Reading is more important than watching television. My goodness. Uh, and I didn't see a footnote. If you could just give some extra details. And this is what I mean when I say racism. We can't pussyfoot things uh, and we can't say, well, oh, I didn't know because they didn't call us all niggers and that sort of thing. Like just being honest about what it means to be white. Uh, you write Flint's elected officials performed in blackface at menstrual shows play acting as cartoonish characters for laughs to raise money for charity. Burston Fieldhouse welcomed mm-hmm. white children to swim in its pools six days a week while black children were relegated to city sprinklers across the street. 
Wednesdays were the only day that the black children were allowed in the Burston pool. And every Wednesday evening after they left, the pool was drained and cleaned before the white children returned the next morning. Water, water, water. Water. But the blackface performance, I didn't see the footnote for that. And I just said, wow, can we get more details about the blackface minstrel performance (laughs) by the Flint elected officials? Sure. I mean, I'd have to look it up to find out, remember where exactly I did read that, but it was, um, but yeah, it was, it was just a thing that like mayors and city council members would do. And they just, it it was this like normal, quote unquote, normal part of civic life, like common is the way to put that. It wasn't normal. Um, And uh, yeah, like in, in, in context here, Flint, is by one was by one measure the most the third most segregated city nationwide and the uh, third uh, the most segregated in the north. Um, it was profoundly segregated. It was um, this growing uh, General Motors town. General Motors was born there, right? And as it grew, it it, it attracted people from all over the world, especially uh, 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 folks coming from the south through the Great Migration, and. And, and the rigidity of uh, the geographical rigidity of like where people could live was um, um, incredibly stark. And especially as more and more people came, it got um, more and more predatory. And the, the, uh, that hierarchy, that social con- socially constructed hierarchy by race was like affirmed um, by businesses, by civic leaders, by this, these, um, um, by schools, by every other measure in this town, it was terrible. There was one. I think this is maybe in the same paragraph. There is there is one case where um, this is you know sort of after. 1954, after Brown versus Board of Education, there was like one second grade grade teacher who had a single black student in her class. And when white parents complained, she made this poor kid sit in the closet with the door open uh, to to look at to 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 pay attention to the le- to be able to see the lessons, you know, um, separating him out uh, from the rest of the group. And um, this this was the pattern for for decades. It was. It was it was wild. It was just unbelievably wild. I would substitute wild. It was standard operating procedure. It was common practice for individuals classified as white. Uh, and I, I'm substituting that because I think that gives a much more accurate understanding of what it means to be white and why in mm. a city. Because in my, I mean, that's huge. I hadn't heard in all the reports and documentaries. I had not heard that elected officials, white officials in Flint performing minstrelsy when the governor of Virginia was being excoriated last year. The coon man, Ralph Northam, uh, for mm-hmm. dressing up at my alma mater, no less in blackface. Mm-hmm. Uh, it should have been. Whoa. Weren't the uh, Flint folks who poisoned everybody, weren't they doing the same thing? Now, that's when you come back to chemical and biological oh. work. Yes, go ahead. Can I clarify something yeah, here? Yes, oh, I, I see. Like the, 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 the blackface, that, that, that was uh, re- describing a re- elected officials during the mid-century. Uh, Flint's elected officials uh, in the most recent years uh, leading up to the water crisis were 
mostly African Americans, although and and didn't perform. None of them performed in, performed in blackface that I know of, um, the, meaning the white folks that, that were on the council. Um, so that's important. Just important clarification there. Uh, strive for accuracy. That is super important. However, I would still look very context. I would think very differently, and particularly since even though well, Flint did have an emergency manager uh, at the time, or several uh, strings of different right. emergency managers and Governor Snyder, and it seemed that there were a lot of white, powerful elected officials, be they Flint or statewide, who were involved in this. I would still think very differently uh, about this crisis, knowing the history uh, of government officials in this city and that type of flagrant conduct. I suspect is still evident uh, in a lot of different ways, uh, particularly in a way, particularly when I come down. Okay, I take that one when I come down later on and we get an EPA official. So this is beyond Flint and presumably not Mm -hmm. mid 20th century. So we come down and it's many other older communities have similar problems with lead in pipes using the set aside funds for this purpose, meaning to ameliorate poisoning in Flint, Michigan, could prompt them to ask for aid too. One EPA official said, I don't know if Flint is the kind of community we want to go out on the limb for. Now, when I take Mm -hmm. a statement like that for a majority black city and then I hear, oh, and the local officials have a history of minstrelsy and then the federal officials at the EPA. I don't know. Are we really? Eh, eh. What a... I go back to, is this chemical and biological warfare? It's all connected. And it's it's like, and another thing too, you mentioned emergency managers. That's such important context that often gets, I've seen get lost in so many narratives about the Flint water crisis. Those, and this is directly, this is a racist policy. This, the, the, um, the elected officials of Flint, uh, did not have the power of their own government. They did not have the power to make any choices at all, uh, both in the in the um, in the decisions leading up to and during uh, the water crisis. It was entirely held by the power of a so-called emergency manager appointed by the governor. Uh, uh, the emergency managers are sent were was sent to the city, and there was a series of four consecutive ones uh, in Flint for peak water crisis years. They sent to the city. Um, because you know fiscal distress we're gonna get we're gonna this is the argument like we're gonna you know get things on board and reset and blah 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 and uh they they had the power that they the one person uh the one appointed person had the authority that the city council would ordinarily have and the power that a mayor would ordinarily have and added powers besides that no elected official has like the power to unilaterally make or break union contracts or sell city assets, things like that. So, so folks in Flint like did not have, um, like the power of their local vote was utterly, was, was literally suspended (laughs) indefinitely, indefinitely. This, you know, this so-called emergency manager that's supposedly only going to be there for a short time for, to fix an emergency was there for like four years, (laughs) like for several years, you know? Um, and it was, um, and it, and it and and the decisions that led to uh, the switch to uh, leave Detroit's water system that had properly treated water that was very expensive and had other issues um, it, to and the decision to um, use the Flint River water and to treat it 
poorly, um, uh, in, in fact, treated it in a way that uh, broke federal law. And then the decisions to repeatedly, day after day after day after day after day after day, um, ignore the escalating uh, problems with the water. Like that, <laughs> the, 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 the people who had the authority to do something about this was so directly the state um, because, of, um, because of the um, emergency management system that it was, I mean, it was, it's just, it's just, it's, I was about to say unbelievable, but I think as you would put it, standard operating procedure. (laughs) Calling things by their accurate name is the beginning (laughs) of knowledge. Uncomfortable laughter is important there too. But I mean, hey, that is, and that's even come up in the last few days. I saw major articles in the LA Times and New York Times where they were giving out these, and you're in Michigan, you said y'all got a stay at home order. People were confused Mm -hmm. because they weren't sure. Well, what does that mean exactly? Does that mean I can go to the grocery store? Can I go to work? Is am I going to get a fine? Is a criminal fine? Like words are very important. And when dealing with racism, white supremacy, the pattern is for incorrect words, which leads to an incorrect understanding, which contributes to why we keep having the same problems with those emergency managers. I thought that was so important. And we get back to deliberate white supremacy racism. You put the numbers on it in the text. If you are white, 10% likelihood that you're going to be living in a locale with an emergency manager. If you are classified as black system of white supremacy, Wow, it jumps to 50% chance that you're going to live in a locale with an emergency manager and all that that means. We talked about with Hurricane Katrina talking about repetition. It would be different if an emergency manager came in and everything was wonderful. We got the best tasting water ever and the cost went down. Oh, it's amazing. Our children are healthy. My hair is vibrant. Oh, I've never been. That'd be totally different. In Katrina, It was, oh, you all are messing things up. You're corrupt. You don't know what you're doing. You messed up the school system. We'll have folks, outsiders come in and take this over for years. It could take a long, it could keep getting, you even had the tricks in the book, how this is supposed to be for a limited amount of time. What do they do, Ms. Clark, so to make sure that they can extend the string of emergency managers? Yeah, written in the laws, it says there's this 18-month limit for emergency managers' tenure. The trick would be to uh, for the emergency manager to resign a few days or you know shortly before that deadline came up, and then a new emergency manager would be appointed, and the clock would start over again. Which is why uh, Flint uh, had uh, was under emergency management for as long as it was. Standard operating procedure. We've heard that one uh, before applied to temporary employment of non-white people, uh, that that's supposed to be temporary. If you hire them more than 90 days, they're supposed to be added on permanent so they can get benefits, dental, all that good stuff. What they'll do is wait till day 89, fire you and then rehire you. And it just restarts and we get to do the whole thing all over again. Like, hey, it works so well in one area. We can do this a bunch of times. Uh, let's see the folks who dialed in with questions from Ms. Clark. The number again, 605-313-5164. The code five, six, four, nine, four, three pound. Uh, before I get to our first caller, have you seen the movie, uh, three, the hard way? I haven't. Should I, uh, Reading is more important than watching television. However, we all got a lot of of viewing time on our hands now, so I don't know. Mm -hmm. Uh, The synopsis, it is about a group of overt white supremacists 
who plot to kill black people in the United States and they do so by poisoning the local water supply. Mm. It's a Negro classic. It came out uh, in, I believe it's in the era of the uh, black exploitation films, they call it. Uh, Jim Brown, famous football player, was in it. Uh, some other uh, big time actors. But yeah, I thought of that immediately when Flint came out, Like, hey, they made a whole movie uh, joking about <laughs> doing this. And they show black people like dying and spit like, ah, they've drank the water. Like, it's really graphic. Anyway. Uh, let's see. Black Africa. I'm totally going. I'm totally going to watch it. I, I honestly like. I, I feel like um, there's something so peculiarly horrifying to have, of all things, water to be the thing that 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 poisons you, right? It, because it's. I mean, it's meant to be life giving. It's and it's so intimate. It's like it's not just the water. It's not just this like glass you drink with the dinner table. It's like the, you know the coffee you make in the morning it's in the formula you feed your baby with it's 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 um it's you know like swimming with your child it's i mean it's the baths you give your children it's it's so intimate and to turn this into something that is um an active threat it's just it's just a it's just it's a, an especially brutal betrayal especially in a state like Michigan that is literally surrounded by water. Water is our blessing. Water is like, water is our, 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 our such a profound and beautiful and abundant resource we have, you know, and, 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 and to, um, and to, to, to have entire cities that, uh, have nothing cannot trust what cannot trust the water in their own town, you know, like it's just, it's just, it's, it, it makes it very, very clear how what happened here was the result of man-made active choices. Context of white supremacy, uh, chemical and biological warfare, and just, man, we are so synced for our listeners. So our book club, Reading is More Important Than Watching Television, we read Harriet <laughs> A. Washington. A terrible mm-hmm. thing to waste. We just finished that, and then the- I was going to do a book event with her, and it got canceled because of this coronavirus. Can you believe it? I was really looking forward to that conversation. I, it's a great book. Top ten. It's in my top. Yeah. Ten. She has two books, in fact, in my top ten. Medical apartheid, the medical also. Yeah. In my top ten. <laughs> amazing. Absolutely amazing. Scott. And she talked. One of the points that I was going to bring up because you talk a lot about poor black people. One of the well, it's not a great point, but it's one of the most important points in her book. A terrible thing to waste. It's not poor black people. It's racism, white supremacy, because black people who are so-called middle class. They are still more likely to live in an area that is polluted than even poor white people, which shows you like, Mm -hmm. wow, this is really deliberate and focused in targeting not poor people, black people, not by accident. Harriet A. Washington, a terrible thing to waste. But then the book we read next or we're reading right now, almost at the finish, uh, Dr. Sylvia Hood Washington Packing them in uh, an archaeological history of environmental racism in Chicago, 1865 to 1954. She has a whole section talking about Love Canal. Uh, She talks Mm -hmm. about the reversal of the Chicago River. And I said, oh, my goodness, I'm reading the exact same thing again uh, in Miss Clark's book. The only (laughs) important distinction we made sure 
the folks in Love Canal were compensated and moved rather quickly. Uh, mm-hmm. And these were white people. They did not compensate and move any of the 50, 57% uh, of the black Flint residents. They did not get mm-hmm. great compensation and move to new location. And oh my God, I can't believe this happened. And what a disgrace. And not at all. Ex- comparisons that right there can tell you a lot about the system of white supremacy uh the black african did you have a question for miss clark uh line should be open proceed oops messed up sorry finger slipped my finger slipped <laughs> yeah um, thank you thank you Gus. um yeah i had a i had a few questions for miss clark um i'm the in the recording that played at the beginning of the show, um, you said like um, environmental groups, universities, and I guess you're a journalist, and you said journalists uh, have learned to tune out what makes us comfortable. I guess when you said us, you were talking about like white people. Um, so like on this show, I've noticed that like white people like are really that uh, the white people write about just things like after they've happened. Um, but like what you said, you said like you, you guys tuned out things. Um, so I was wondering if there's something like right now that's occurring or that's mm. going to occur in the future that that you know about that you can just like let us know about um, so that like blind people can prepare. That's an amazing question. I'm really, I really appreciate that you asked that. That's a really good question. Yeah, I, I mean, when I was just talking about the, uh, you know, earlier, I meant to say that there was a lot of responsibility to spread around. There's a lot of people who should have intervened sooner, and I was including myself in that group because, you know, I'm a journalist here in Detroit, and I did, I, like, I should have been writing articles much sooner than I started writing about articles about what was going on in Flint with the water. And so I have to accept, you know, re- responsibility for that. You know, I, I feel ashamed of that. I think it's, 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 it was, it's terrible. <laughs> um, as for things happening now, I mean, the, I'm sure there's a lot that I don't know about, but one thing that's very much on my mind right now is, um, uh, is 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 about how how the coronavirus the the how this the the what the, these widespread water shutoffs um, that have been going on and while there are some there is some publicity around uh, we're going to suspend shutoffs we're going to reconnect folks that are um, have had their have had their water shut off in their homes uh, first of all that process has been slow and incomplete. Second of all, coronavirus isn't the only public health threat uh, for people who have been experiencing these uh, very long extended um, uh, shutoffs that deny them access to uh, drinking water. Uh, three, like it's, it's uh, the very fact that we have, um, that we have made access to water such a burden you know, made it made it so difficult to access for so many people is incredibly disturbing. And 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 I'm glad some people are like a lot of people are are going to be getting their water restarted. Sometimes after years of not having access in their homes uh, to water, that's 
you know, great. But I fear that at once this corona, the coronavirus pandemic eases up, I mean, are we just, just going to get back to business as usual and cut them all off again? I mean, I, I think like, I think for the, the, it's, it's absolutely, um, it's causing real harm to so many people. It happens uh, sometimes in very much invisibly and it's, it's just incredibly disturbing. And so like, so, so having the, I would say drinking water shutoffs is one thing that I think deserves more attention. And also, um, Oh, I had another one. <laughs> I had another one that was kind of like flickering in the back of my mind and I might need a minute to pull it back up. What was I thinking of? Oh, tax foreclosures. That was it. Tax foreclosures. Um, people who are being kicked out of their homes for not um, paying their property taxes, and uh, at least here in Detroit, and I, and I believe not only this, these property taxes had been way overly inflated to begin with. So illegally inaccurate uh, property taxes that people couldn't pay, and then they got kicked out of their homes for it. Many of these homes ended up just being sitting vacant and ultimately, you know, being demolition by neglect, right? Um, and it's uh, it's happening on such a scale, especially in Detroit, that it has um, um, absolutely devastated families. It's it's been a profound disruption to. Uh, generational wealth for, uh, black families. It has been, um, uh, it's been, been a terribly destructive force in neighborhoods for neighborhood, keeping neighborhoods stabilized. Um, it's, uh, apparently suspended for the rest of the year because of the coronavirus. There aren't going to be any tax foreclosures this this year, which again shows what can happen when there's political will. And if it's, (laughs) and, but it's not, it's, it's, uh, I would like to think that um, I would like to think that um, people can make ch- like if we can choose it now, if we can choose to suspend tax foreclosures now, why can't we make that a permanent way of doing business? You know, why can't we make that? Why can't we? Why can't we uh, uh, not make it so? hard for people to just live in their home, just live in their home, often ones that they've inherited from their family members, hard-won homes. Here in a city that has uh, struggled with, a, you know, widespread vacancy, we've lost more than half of our population, you know, over time, and, and still people are getting kicked out of their homes for these absolutely illegally inflated uh, property tax bills. They're overcharged over $900 million, um, according to uh, recent reports. It's Anyway, I could just ramble on about this, but I think tax foreclosures, widespread water shutoffs, I think those are two of the things that are um, um, causing deep harms to people and, of course, are um, playing out in a way that affects, you know, people of color the worst. It does, and it's, and it's, it's not okay. Um, your, your website um, said that you are a... Um Fulbright Fellow, fellow, uh, or that you were a Fulbright Fellow in Nairobi, Kenya. I was. Um, what is the Fulbright? What is the What is the Fulbright Fellow, and um, what were you doing in Nairobi, Kenya? Yeah, sure. It was in. I did that in 2011. 
It is a program that, I mean, there's a, there's a, a lot of different programs run under the Fulbright program, but basically it's this, uh, for the program I did was like, it, it, it gave me, um, I did a creative writing grant. Um, it gave me, um, uh, funding to, uh, go to Kenya to work on writing and to teach writing workshops. Um, it's mostly, um, um, it's meant to be an intercultural program, uh, where, you know, getting, you know, getting people the opportunities to go to around, different countries around the world. It's as opposed to a project-based program, like there's nothing you turn in at the end. It's not like a research project. I think there's some language uh, programs. There's a lot of public health programs. You know, people do that. I did a writing version. And so while I was there, I spent some time helping out. Um, I taught writing workshops. I did some writing of my own. Um, a lot of my time I spent at um, a place called Kwani, which it means so what in Swahili. It's this East African publisher based in Nairobi that's, um, that's working on building a publishing infrastructure for um, African literature so that writers on the continent, especially in East Africa, uh, could uh, you know publish, like not rely on Western publishers to get their work out into the world, um, to connect more with... Uh, 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 community, like communities of, uh, readers and, um, you know, fellow citizens and all that, you know, within, uh, their own communities. It was really interesting too, because they, they experiment a lot with language. Like there was this, um, at the time newish kind of slang language called Sheng. That was this sort of hybrid language of different, that, that, that brought different pieces together. And they published the first book, ever in this language, which was kind of cool. Um, anyway, I, I, I just, I just helped out however I could and kind of hung back and learned what I could and, um, got to know people and, um, just, just tried to, you know, be, be present and pay attention and be in a place that was very, very new to me. Um, a city that was very, very new to me, cultures that were very new to me and, uh, learn what I could and, um, yeah, that was it. <laughs> um, like last question: Did you, Could you tell us like any uh, racist jokes that you've heard about the the Flint water mm. um, crisis? I haven't heard somebody tell a racist joke specifically about the water, but I have heard people not joking at all, talking quite earnestly about how they believe it is has all been um, just a big fake. <laughs> They're like truthers. It's like, it's, there's, there are like folks who, are, who are think that this has been just um, a manufactured crisis um, to get money, basically, to get, to get phil, philanth- philanthropy and nonprofits and, you know, donations and whatever, just to, just to get stuff. Basically, um, and, 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 and the thing is, and when they've suggested this to me, they're, they're not joking. <laughs> they, they mean it. They mean it. Um, they think that this was, um, there are folks who think that, um, poisoned is, they, they've taken issue with the title of my book. They take, um, it, poison is too extreme of a word. They'll like suggest, they'll be like, look at, there was, there's other communities that have also had, lead poisoning and here, you know, what they didn't have, why didn't everybody get all riled up about that? And whatever, you know, like there's, there's this, um, there's a movement that has, I think has 
rumbled that think that is um, that attempts to cast doubt on the village that still to this day does not believe um, the lived experience of people in the community, uh, despite all the this evidence. Is, this is a movement of white people. This is a movement of white. I've people. only known white people to make these claims. Um, uh, okay. and, and I mean, and 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 I don't know. I guess it's because I have the book out. It's kind of clear where I stand. So. Um, only the only a few of the I think the most energetic and perhaps I would say egotistical of them really feel the need to kind of pick pick the point with me, um, but they have and sometimes they have public events that I've done and it's um, it's I think it's 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 very revealing it's a very revealing exercise it's 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 not an exercise it's like it I mean they they mean it and I think. Um, uh, if there's a few of them who bring up, I think, I know, I'm sure there's um, more people who have this stance. And especially, especially now, I think a lot of people just, they're like, oh, it's all fixed now. Oh, it's all fixed. What are they still complaining about? What are they, you know, there is a little bit of that attitude that I, I hear sometimes. Um, and, and which again, mistakes this whole Flint water crisis as if it was just, just a, just a unfortunate technical problem. Unfortunate. Oh, like, like as if it was just, Oh, the pipes just broke. What a shame. Is it, you know, kind of erasing the larger social and policy, um, um, uh, context for that, that created this crisis in the first place. So, so there is, there is some of that, unfortunately. Um, and I, you know, my role is to just tell people they're wrong. (laughs) Much obliged. Thank you. Much obliged, the Black African uh, B in Toronto Global System. Good to hear from you, ma'am. Did you have questions for Miss Clark? You should be with us. Yes. Uh, greetings, guests, callers, and listeners, and greetings to your guest, um, Anna Clark. Uh, so, yes, I have three questions. The first question I had um, was. Um, I, I know that you used the term crazy um, in, to um, describe in part uh, the times of segregation. Um, I would like to believe, and um, Pat has shown, that it's, it's a historical treatment of um, how those have been designated as black people have been treated by those designated as white. Uh, would you agree? Yeah, I would. Okay. So then um, the next question I have for you is um, with environmental racism or um, black communities being um, uh, placed in uh, purposely so um, in areas where it's more polluted, where there's contamination, uh, would you also agree that that also has been a historical treatment against black people from white society in America? It, I do. It's an absolute, it's an absolute fact. All right. And then the third question I had was, uh, then what would be the plans to change it around? That's a good question. Well, we, it has to change around um, because the status quo isn't good enough. It's not good at all. Um, 
I think, well, I think right now, actually, I think there has been um, a rise. There is a there is some rising consciousness about environmental racism. I mean, just these. You mentioned some of the other books that um, that folks have been reading, and this whole series about it. I think, um, I think uh, that certain catastrophes like Flint that um, play out with a sort of undeniable plainness. Um, um, like for, there, there's, there, there are people, I know people in Michigan who, who would never talk, who never would, white people in Michigan would never talk about racism or environmental justice or environment. These are, these are not at all parts of their vocabulary. There are things they do not think about ever. Um, but they knew. Ms. Clark, mm-hmm. Hello, Ms. Clark. I'm so sorry to interrupt. I'm, I'm really not interested in what whites think right now. Um, just going back to the question, because I, I understand uh, that, um, and it has been shown too, that if the government, who is mainly white, wants to change something, they can change it in about two to five minutes. Um, so if I could just have a very succinct um, answer as to what would be the resolution. Thank you. Sure. Uh, I think that right, the rising consciousness that makes it impossible for people with that decision-making power in government to do anything else is pretty essential to change it. I mean, I'm trying to be 16. Thank you. Thank you. Context of white supremacy. Uh, star six one for other folks. If you have questions uh, for Miss Clark, uh, our caller, uh, I believe from the Cleveland area. Uh, did you have a question for Miss Clark? Your line should be open. Uh, greetings, Gus. Greetings to all the callers and listeners, and uh, greetings, Miss Clark. Uh, I was listening to your. Uh, you were talking about your hometown, and. Forgive me if I misunderstood, but you said that there was kind of a black side of town and a white side of town. The towns I grew up in a town called St. Joseph. Ben Harbor is its so-called twin city, um, but their differences are extremely visible and apparent. It's been actually written about quite a lot, and there's been some books and things like that. Um, and uh, yeah, that's where I grew up. Could that be described as a segregated community? Absolutely. Now, during your upbringing, did you meet any racist white supremacists? Yeah, I did. And I, when I was young, when I was a kid, I wouldn't have articulated like that. I didn't. I didn't know. Um, and. Uh, But it becomes clear, you know, it becomes clear. Um, It's, uh, I think there's, for example, here's, here's, here's one thing that's not even that long. It's not long time ago. Um, Benton Harbor um, High School is, it's, they're small towns. They're both small towns. One high school. It's, uh, uh, has been struggling a lot. It's lost a lot of kids to um, schools of choice and charter schools and things like that. And uh, it was at risk of being closed by the state uh, last year. And um, in St. Joseph, I heard a lot of folks, um, you know, talk 
with, you know, this sort of tone of sadness about it, but kind of in the sense of, well, they just didn't, you know, care enough. They just, their parents didn't, you know, support them enough. They didn't, they just didn't, you know, they just let it go. There was this sort of narrative. I heard people um, uh, talk like that as if it was, um, um, as if all the problems of concentrated uh, poverty, inequality, all, all the accumulating problems that were very clearly delineated by race in the area and had been for quite some time was just um, was just a, just a problem of people's sort of personal behavior. Um, I, I, I would I would consider that uh, some of the attitudes of white supremacy. Uh, my final question is, uh, at what age do you think you became cognizant, aware, or had an understanding of racism, white supremacy? Um, I would, it, it started really happening, I think, when I was in college, which is when I began, I spent most of my adult life, uh, working in various ways in, um, prisons and detention centers around the state. And I remember in one of my first experiences, um, meeting, I, you know, meeting a lot of people from Benton Harbor who were my age, you know, and, and having, and I grew up in a, in a pretty poor family, but still had access to all these resources that, um, a person who grew up just a couple miles from me had, um, did not have. And, um, the, seeing this like dramatic difference in the outcomes of our lives that was clear, that, that had no other explanation, but our racial difference, um, is when I began, beca- uh, becoming more cognizant of this and more questioning and skeptical of a lot of what I, um, inherited. But I also want to say, say this all with some humility too, because it's a, it's, I think a lifelong unlearning journey too. So, um, um, I'm not done. <laughs> you know, there's a, there's it's a process. What what did you unlearn? Well, just just sort of like I think I had this very um, I think I I think I unle- I think I I think I came into it having this sort of sense of. Like a lack of understanding about all the um, about all the uh, I think I had this understanding that like racism was in this like only, like purely existed in this very um, literal and direct way like racial slurs or you know the old images of fire hoses and dogs and stuff and I think I inherited the idea that most of that was in the past that was. Um, that is not true and is something that um, uh, I, I did need to and continue need to continue, uh, continue on learning. Uh, I'll end right now. But but you did say you knew racist white supremacists growing up. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I mean, and, and just as a kid, you know, like in a, in a small town, you're just like, oh, that that's uncle whoever, you know, you don't like I didn't it didn't the word. So people, so people in your family were racist, white supremacists. <laughs> I, I mean, I, yeah, yeah. It makes me sad, which is why what is the tone you're hearing. But yeah.
I mean, you can't live I, I in this like segregated area without that, without that, um, without people rationalizing it like that. I don't have any more questions, Gus. Thank you. Much obliged. Thank you, Miss Clark. Thank you. Much obliged. Uh, before I get Thomas in New York, uh, oh man, <clears throat> we've been broadcasting for 11 years. Uh, mm. One thing that I have encouraged folks to study uh, over those number of years, uh, racist jokes. Uh, have you heard any racist jokes in your time as a white person and being around other whites, even some racists that were in your family? If you remember even one racist joke we would appreciate if you could share i think those are always little treasure troves that reveal quite a bit about the system of racism do you recall any racist jokes i'm sure i can recall them but give me a few minutes because i i don't have it right at the top of my head but if, let's let's circle back to that yes <laughs> written down <laughs> written down thomas in new york Oh, are you there, Thomas, in New York? One of, one of my questions, for sure. Oh, <laughs> sorry, my bad. Sorry about that. Sorry. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. I, I didn't call racist jokes. I got it right here. You got any black jokes, but it's the same thing. <laughs> um, good evening, ma'am. Um, Hello. Is there, as a white woman, and um, you seem to be very uh, knowledgeable about racism, you said that you lived in a city where it was very segregated and you could see the difference. Is there something that black people can do to stop white people from practicing racism? Hmm. I mean, the responsibility to stop practicing racism is really with white people. So I hesitate to say anything, you know, about um, uh, about what other people should do to to make them stop, you know. So, um, so that's so that's I guess that I guess that's kind of that. I will say, without it being anybody's requirement or job or to educate anyone um, or to make them stop or anything, I will say that I think just as part of my ongoing unlearning process, I think I've, I've just been really grateful for folks who've um, shared their personal experiences with the ways that racism has manifested in their lives that in ways that helped me see it. And um, cause I had the, the privilege of it being invisible to me. Um, and uh, I, uh, and learning how, le- like learning you know, even seemingly very small ways uh, that it um, constricted their ability uh, to uh, be their full selves, live their full lives, have, you know, um, have every opportunity that they deserved. Um, over time, you know, help just made, just meant a lot to me. Um, and, and, and I, and I appreciate it though, but I, but I, but I really emphasize that that was generous of them and it was not, it was, it's, it's not their job <laughs> to, to, to bear their souls in, in, in such way to me. It's when, when that's happened, I've just been very grateful, but really it's white people who have the job to stop being racist. Okay. Um, 
I don't think that um, anyone, including yourself, to say that they're ignorant to racism. You said you grew up in a segregated town and you could see the difference when you were a little kid. Um, Obama went to Flint, mm -hmm. the water. Um, what is, in your opinion, um, your um, your feelings about the, his handling of the Flint water crisis? I think it was ill-advised, that visit to Flint. It was, it, it did not go over well. It did not, um, it, in fact, it enraged people. Um, the, 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 that sort of ritual of him drinking um, a glass of Flint water from the podium, I suspect he was advised that this was a necessary step to reassure people that they could trust their civic water again. In fact, what it felt to people is a complete dismissal and erasure of their ongoing concerns with the water, um, concerns that didn't just end with um, a technical fix that wasn't even a complete technical fix at that point. So um, I am glad that, it, that the situation in Flint got to the point where it was getting some federal attention. I know the mayor of Flint uh, met, I believe met with Obama at a few times. Perhaps those were more effective um, in resulting in some actual meaningful benefits for people in the community, but the, the sort of public demonstration of drinking Flint water, which most people in Flint do not even believe was Flint water at the first place because they're like, they wouldn't have let him drink that, um, is uh, to this day <laughs> remembered uh, quite poorly. Uh, so I don't think that was a good idea. I don't think it went well. Not his best step. Okay, and, uh, and um, uh, do you know anyone with the coronavirus, by the way? I do not know, um, though I, with the caveat that we don't have enough tests, and I'm sure a lot more people have it than know they have it. So um, we, need, we need more tests so we have more transparency about what's going on. I do not know anyone for sure, though, who has tested for positive for the coronavirus. Okay, uh, now uh, Donald Trump's president now, not Obama, um, and he, you know, won the majority of the white women who voted for him um, in America. Um, do you think that um, Trump's handling of the coronavirus is better than Obama's handling of um, the Lent water crisis? That's an interesting comparison. Um, I don't. I think uh, he has a lot more direct responsibility for getting um, uh, right now that has been, that he's uh, that been deflecting. And as, as we heard earlier that these like use of phrases like Chinese virus and um, even as early and as early um, discussion of the coronavirus as if it were just some hoax made to look bad. I think, I think there's been this like added level of disinformation that, um, uh, creates like adds insult to injury in the midst of uh, this public health crisis. Well, thank you very much. I can't think of any more, um, you know, um, trying to confuse people than go in there to drink the water, but um, thank you very much, ma'am, and you have a nice evening. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Those are good questions.
Much obliged, Thomas in New York. Uh, Henry in Chicago. Neighbors almost. Uh, Jeff, questions <laughs> for Ms. Clark. All right. Uh, uh, greetings, Gus. Greetings to all the callers and listeners. And uh, greeting, Mrs. Clark. Um, three questions. Um, do you agree that this Flint water crisis was a poisoning? Yes. Okay. Are you familiar with the Crestwood, Illinois water crisis? I don't. Is this? Tell me more about it. Okay. So leads up to my third question. Um, about ten years ago. Uh, there was a, uh, uh, well, a little bit over 10 years ago, uh, a local suburb of Chicago, uh, Crestwood, Illinois, which is a predominantly white suburb, uh, found that there was contamination in their water. And basically what resulted in that was uh, cancerous uh, pe- uh, people who contracted cancer, and it uh, resulted in a death or two. And basically what ended up happening was uh, that the federal government stepped in and basically uh, charged the water officials. And basically what ended up happening was uh, they were charged with poisoning uh, of these uh, patients, I mean, of these residents. And uh, when the federal government raided the, the Crestwood officials, uh, there, was, there was like air support of the raid. Hmm. So, and so my thing is you had argued with Gus about well, you, you were you were a little reluctant to call this biological warfare, but the the people in Crestwood who I've you know who I've talked to who have lived with it had claimed that this was some some form of biological warfare, and I just it's just kind of strange that you feel like uh, this this is not you know this is you're reluctant to claim that this is biological warfare, but you know just like what Gus said earlier. Uh, you know, uh, we've been reading uh, environmental racism books, and yes, there are there are a number of cases where white people, white communities get poisoned, but um, those issues get resolved. So, uh, how is this not uh, biological warfare on uh, on the Flint residents? Yeah, I hear that. I, I think I, I might, that hesitation is because it was a new phrase to think about um, to apply to it because I just hadn't thought of it like that, but, um, and I think what you heard was a lot of me thinking through it out loud for better and worse, <laughs> but I hear the point. I mean, it is biologically cause, you know, creating warfare in a entire community of people in a common geographical space. I mean, I hear it. It is. Okay. That's all I had. Thank you. Thank you for telling me about Crestwood. Different levels of tolerance uh, for white people in the system of racism. Uh, our caller, last four digits, 4689. 4689. Did you have questions for Ms. Clark? I do, Gus. Uh, and I want to ask you first is it okay if I ask a question about the eighth area of activity? Proceed. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, can I ask you a question? Are you or have you ever been engaged in a sexual relationship with a black person? Mm. I haven't. Okay. That's my only question. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> that was short, right to the point. Uh, 
I had, uh, I'll double check if folks that are uh, with us, star six one, if you have a question for Ms. Clark, I know we have listeners in the Michigan area, make sure you're not a spectator if you have a question uh, that you want to make sure you get in for Ms. Clark. Uh, you yeah. talked about uh, white people being ignorant, uh, willfully ignorant. Uh, we've heard that uh, frequently on the program. Uh, and like I said, we've read James Lowen's book, Sundown Town, lots of them uh, throughout the state of Michigan, uh, where white people did not allow uh, Negras uh, in the town after the sun went down. Uh, but you also in the book, uh, you talked about uh, Governor Romney, not Mitt, mm-hmm. uh, in the 60s and these efforts where you consistently have these sundown towns, uh, areas like where you grew up, uh, where they don't allow black people and it's federally funded, uh, where you get infrastructure and plumbing and all of this to help build up your little racist town, racist community where you can exclude uh, black people and suck in tax dollars to do this. And Governor Romney said, hey, you know what? We're going to withhold federal funds. That'll stop this. Like, let's have some teeth in all this. We're not just going to throw out pretty words and slogans about all this. Like, hey, we look at the census and you all are excluding folks. Fine. We'll withhold federal funds and you won't be able to build up your town until we see that you've stopped practicing racism. And that got stopped. And in fact, you wrote in the book, I wrote it down. A Boston suburb, for example, agreed to proceed with a housing development so that HUD would release funds for a water project. Water. Mm-hmm. But Romney's strategy was controversial. I thought that was interesting word choice. It's controversial hyphen. He needed a police escort to exit a public forum in a Detroit suburb. And Richard Nixon's administration eventually brought this program to a halt. Uh, I think this would be a great illustration. White people cannot be ignorant about racism, white supremacy. Governor Romney, you're not supposed to be doing this. You're not supposed to be penalizing. Why? And I mean, this is an aggressive penalty. We're going to withhold federal funds for you to upgrade your water project because you're practicing racism. Wow. And it gets to the point that he, police escort. And then the president shuts this down and we don't have this type of thing anymore. In my view, this is an example. You can't be a white person and be ignorant about racism. And you can't really be a white person and be aggressively working against racism. This would be one example. They got many of them, but am I being logical here? Oh, that's exactly. It. I mean, he was the governor of Michigan, George Romney, and then he, he goes on to run uh, the house, the HUD up in the federal government. Like, so really powerful role for, um, um, in terms of, uh, uh, providing or not providing federal funds to communities um, that were growing, which was especially suburbs, right? Like like places for people to exit cities, you know, to give them a landing space, uh, white people to leave cities and to give them a landing place, like in the wake of um, school desegregation and fair housing laws, right? And this is like the early 70s. And, uh, and yeah, he was uh, uh, promptly... <laughs> Uh, uh, alienated. Um, those efforts were were, were such, and and I think um, it, that was this like tiny peak of what it might have looked like had we pursued uh, 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 policies that um, for integration with the same vigor with uh, which segregation was constructed, right? And and I think um, we have seen uh, a much more passive and not coincidentally ineffective. Uh, uh, way of um, 
of, of running these like housing programs in the decades since. Or you could say effective, depending on your point of view, right? Where there's more uh, so-called segregation now uh, than there was uh, 60 years ago. Uh, and that's what I mean right there. I pointed that out in the book. You made my point exactly where I said in the book, you don't use the term racism. You use lots of terms like that. What we just heard, integration, segregation. And I've said for 11 years, as have others, those are not accurate terms. If what we're talking about is white supremacy, racism, and you can just replace in the sentence that whites have not demonstrated the same vigor in producing justice in comparison to the vigor and enthusiasm that they display dedication to practicing white supremacy racism, that's much more accurate than your sentence. Is it not? Or I guess you can correct me. Which, which sentence do you think is more accurate? I, I think they're both true, but I, I hear how you're saying that there, that you see uh, one as alighting the clarity of the other. Integration, segregation, I don't even know what those terms mean uh, in terms of what I said was accurate. We talk about racism, white supremacy, calling things by their accurate name. The problem is not integration, white people and black people being together, so-called. The problem is not so-called segregation. The problem is white supremacy, racism, calling things by their accurate name. Very important because I said that that's in the book. Racism not being used. Very important. Call Can I ask you a question? Can I ask you a question? Just real quick. I mean, do you see do you see segregation as an outgrowth of racism? Like I, it is, is 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 like does segregation? Can segregation like is isn't segregation necessarily a product of racism? I'll repeat what I just said. I don't even know what those terms mean. Uh, I mean, are you talking about okay. black people and white people being in proximity? Like how close do we have to be together to say that we are integrated? I mean, if if that's what we're talking about, then the plantation that would be integrated. Right. You got slaves in the house with white people. So is that integration? No, well, I guess what I meant with, with segregation is I meant to describe like a, a, a concerted exertion of power to divide people up spatially by race in my view we have a system of white supremacy racism where white people dominate and they individuals classified as white that was something i had in the book because you had a number of sentences in the text where it's not really directly going to white people are the ones that are doing these things uh, i have to go to one i take a moment to flip through and find one of the sentences, but it's in a system of racism, white supremacy, white people can decide black people are going to live here. No, you're going to live. And you see this demonstrated because sometimes they'll put black people in an area and say, you're going to be warehoused here. And they might wait 40 years and then come back and say, Oh, wait a minute. In fact, we want to be here. We're going to move you over here now. Mm -hmm. They do. So, I mean, if you're in a system of racism, white supremacy, it's not dividing people up and having them squabble. It's, White people, the most powerful white people in particular, they get to decide where people are going right. to live at. Maybe we will allow black people to live here. Maybe we won't. Maybe we'll right. move the black people out. Maybe we won't. Maybe we'll have a small number of black people. Maybe That's what I mean. It's, it's not about so-called integration, whatever those terms even mean. Again, I don't even use those terms. I don't know what they mean. That's not the problem. The problem is 
white people practicing racism, white supremacy. If we're going to live side by side and you're still going to practice racism, well, then that hasn't really solved anything. No, I, I actually, I completely agree with you. I, I think it's just, we're just like had different terms, but I think that's, I what think. Is, what do I you mean about, when you yeah. say segregation? What do you mean when you use that term? Well, yeah, because it's the, it's, it's the structured policy that white people um, uh, designed as an exertion of power, right? To, to, to create, to systematically disinvest in community. Uh, they separated people by race and then systematically disinvested in communities of color to their own advantage and gave themselves this like inflated and um, systemic self-perpetuating uh, white supremacy <laughs> that, that, that was defined geographically. The I'm going to make sure I get our other caller in, but I just want to point out most of the time when people use segregation, that's not what they mean. Most of the time when people use the term segregation, white and non-white, they generally infer or sometimes they'll state explicitly they mean white people and non-white people being in close or closer proximity, even though that doesn't get specified. And a lot of times what that will morph into is just some sort of. Uh, symbolism of children holding hands together or interracial relationships, that mm-hmm. sort of thing, signifying proximity, close proximity. Racism has been defeated. And I'm saying that that is a really uh, incorrect, like horribly incorrect uh, and really prehistoric way of thinking about white supremacy racism which is a total global power structure where individuals classified as white, same thing I said two hours ago, dominate abuse, subjugate individuals they classify as not white. That is very different than even using language that suggests the problem that we're talking about is uh, spatial relationship proximity. I, I hear what you're saying and I, I, I and now I'm feeling abashed that I didn't define it how I how I meant it, which is uh, not this sort of just people at different tables, you know, like it like it was I meant it as this to describe that much much more precise uh, mechanism of power and racism. Yeah, I should have said that specifically. Now I feel sad. <laughs> System of racism, white supremacy. Uh, Anna Clark was fr- retired firefighter in Florida. Did you have a question to get in uh, from Ms. Clark? You should be with us, sir. Greetings uh, to the guests. Uh, the, the meaning that I think I heard her give to uh, segregation sounds very much like the meaning, a logical meaning to the global system of racist white supremacy. I also don't know what segregation means uh, also. I, I, I've heard it before, but, but it doesn't make any sense on, on uh, uh, is, uh, the use of the word, let alone the definition. My question is, being that uh, you have admitted because you were asked earlier in the program uh, uh, that you are a member of a race, and that race is uh, white. Uh, I, uh, on a specific, most specifically as you can, uh, could you give us your answer to solving this problem? Not just the uh, the, the the issue of poison water, poisoning non-white people, 
uh, with water, but the global system of racism, white supremacy, could you give us a answer, your ideas or idea to the answer to that problem, mm. racism, white supremacy? I mean, it's a huge one, and I don't pretend to know everything and to have simple solutions, but I think that, like, I think the number one thing that needs to happen is people, white people, um, who have this uh, sort of false but real power, right? This sort of uh, um, based on the myth, but act, uh, uh, existing in the world. People who have this power need to um, uh, <laughs> need, need to redirect it to create uh, like a, a systemic inclusion in the way that systemic exclusion has. Uh, uh, has been to replace that. Okay, I'm jumbling my words because I'm trying to think it through as I talk about it. Um, I think that I think the I think the point is that I think pe- white people who have this inherited power need to um, number one recognize this uh, uh, system of white supremacy and 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 with that consciousness. Um, uh, dismantle the mechanisms that uh, perpetuate it systemically. So what that looks like, for example, is like, is, is, is like not looking at this, these patterns of environmental racism, looking at these uh, uh, patterns of, um, um, of chronic harm done to people um, because of the air they're breathing, because of the water they're drinking and, um, and 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 like and 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 just like we're kind of doing right now, like 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 we have this moratorium on shutoffs, we have this you know moratorium on tax foreclosures, but it's like temporary and it's not yet like fueled by this like wider um, and necessary consciousness of 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 justice, I guess. And like and I think I think that until that happens we're going to keep seeing the same patterns play out. Do you think it's logical and a must do for white people, especially white people who do not mind having conversations on the matter with non-white people to be prepared to answer my question uh, in a reasonable period of time to, whether it's a program, whether it's a one-on-one discussion uh, with someone, do you think it's essential that any white person who is willing to uh, uh, be in contact with a non-white person be uh, prepared and uh, also uh, willing to have such an answer? Meaning the answer to their, their ideas their personal ideas to the answer of the problem of racist white supremacy. Do you think, I think that's logical? I think being willing to contribute, yes. And like being willing to take take responsibility is yeah. I think that's like I think that having an answer to your question is um is a part of that. Though I so I also want to like acknowledge that I think part of the responsibility of white people is to step back, right? And to um um and to uh Step back and make room uh, to let there be room to to follow to, for for others, you know. So I, I don't want to 
I don't want, I'd be, I'd be wary of the white person who presents themselves as the savior of, and the, you know, all knowledgeable person about how to fix global racism too. Yeah, but uh, assist me with the four step back. Or assist us with the metaphor that you used in your explanation by saying step back. Oh, I guess I, I mean, I mean, I mean, sure I, mean, I, mean I mean, I mean to like to not make themselves the center of the story, you know, like, I mean, I think for, I think that, I think that uh, people of color need to um, like white people need to follow their lead, you know, and, 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 and learn and, and not be the ones with all the answers to hear and respond and take responsibility for what, you know, for what the wisdom that others have. I mean, like the people in Flint were like, they're um, like, I think the way that their lived experience and the, the knowledge that, that the knowledge that they had was like the way that was dismissed. You could see, I mean, it was, you could see how dangerous and brutal it was. And that's just one instance of this like historic, you know, ongoing um, pattern. I think, uh, I think we need to, uh, I think a lot of white people need to <laughs> like step back in the sense that um, there's, they, they don't have the most important, important voices. You know, they need to, they need to, they, that, that they need to um, not be taking up all the oxygen in the room. Last question. Who do you think is most knowledgeable uh, about the system of race and white supremacy? White people or, or their victims who are non-white? That's a good question. I mean, I think, I think. Hello. Hello. Can you hear me? No, us? I said hello. Oh, <laughs> I heard you. I heard you. Okay. That, that was a metaphor. That was a metaphor. I get it. I get it. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I think. I mean, it, I mean, it, it sounds, sounds like you want white people to be quiet, and and I was uh, nothing. Go ahead. Go ahead, ma'am. I'm not going to help you with the answer. Well, no, I, don't, I mean, I don't. They need to be. They need. I mean, white people need to be talking about it, and white people need to be talking about it with white people in particular. White people who, um, um, who have been all too comfortable in uh, ignoring. Um, the, the reality of what's going on. Uh, and, and I, 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 all, I, I guess I, what I mean is that I think that like, who's more knowledgeable about the problem. That, that was my question. I mean, I, I think people who, I think people, I don't know, I guess is the honest answer. I mean, I think, I think what both, I think what both hmm. communities know is important. And, um, I think, I think it's both important. I don't think one's more or, like they're, 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 it's so, it's so intertwined with each other. I don't, I guess I don't see one as more or less than the other. Although I do think with white folks, that knowledge is, um, feigned away, like pretended away, uh, way, way too often. And I think that's, um, very, a very necessary thing to address for white people to, uh, address. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Thank you. Much obliged, caller in Florida. Uh, we had another caller dial in. Uh, think you're on our. Oh, looks like you're on a block number. Uh, did you have a question? Might be Ivy. Did you have a question, ma'am? 
Uh, yes, sir. I'm sorry for giving my um, hand up late. Greetings, Gus, and greetings to all the callers on the line. Uh, greetings, is it Miss Clark? Hi. Is, is that is it, did I get your name correct? That's right. Okay. Um, you mentioned inherited power. My question is: Would any white person have power at all if they were not willing to practice racism? Hmm. I think if you exist in a racist society, there's only so much not practicing racism you can do, though the more of it that you can do, the better. Um, so there's some inherited privilege that I as a white person have, um, no matter how alert I am to uh, the, the realities of racist structures. Um, I want to, you know, unlearn and unlearn and unlearn and um, to be a practitioner of justice, both as a person and as a writer. Um, but um, I, I also recognize that if I'm like, as long as I exist in a racist society, just there's, there's um, ways that I'm, ways that I'm treated, ways that I, um, biases that, um, are ingrained in me deeper than I can articulate. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that those, like, I, I think it'd be naive, uh, to pretend that, um, that I could, uh, eliminate all of that, um, just, just by, uh, will. But I try to be, uh, as alert as I can, as aware as I can, and to make it a constant practice to, um, replace those habits and practices with uh, something much truer and healthier and just. Okay, uh, ma'am, I'm very confused by your answer. Um, I've observed um, white people get in trouble with other white people when they're not willing to practice racism. So would it mm -hmm. be possible that I could get a yes or a no? I'll restate my question. Um would any white person have any power at all if they were not willing to practice racism? I think they would have power still in a racist society. How so? I think because uh, even outside of their own individual actions, others who do practice racism will give them certain benefits, will give them benefits of doubt, will give them opportunities, will, like that community in Illinois, um, really come out for them when their water is poisoned with, with, with the Air Force or whatever it was. You know, like that, you know, there, there's, even if an individual in that community is um, not practicing racism, there's still the benefits of, they still receive um, a benefit that uh, they wouldn't have received if they're a person of color um, and in this society. So I think it's good <laughs> to not practice racism um, as, as, as much as possible. And we need to do, white people need to do as much of that as possible, both personally and um, systematically. But I think uh, there you do have some benefits that are outside your individual actions. That's part of it being a system. Okay, those, those um, I guess, examples of assistance that you mentioned, would those examples of, assist of assistance that you mentioned, would they be given 
if the people who were giving them knew that those that they were giving them to were unwilling to practice racism. Isn't, aren't those, aren't those, um, those things that are given based on the assumption that they're willing to practice racism? And if they thought that they were not willing to do so, that they would remove that assistance. So you're saying, like you're, so I, I see what you're saying. You're kind of like, kind of like the example of George Romney, you know, trying to give some teeth to some of this stuff and, and being quickly, shut down you're you're kind of saying like that some of the benefits you'd get you'd relinquish if you become a non if you if you don't practice like racism is that what you're saying um yes like if the the people who are you know giving you whatever assistance they're assuming that you're willing to practice racism and if they find out that you are not that they're going to are they not going to remove that assistance that power the benefits whatever words you want to use that they're going to re- they're going to remove those things if they find out that you are unwilling to practice racism. I think it's I think it's certainly possible. Um, I, I I think we've yet to see like if we're talking about like kind of spatially like an entire town. I don't know if we've seen like an entire town um, of white people all becoming like almost by definition, right? Like like you you can't have. Um, an entirely white town that's all non-practitioners of racism. That's also still an all-white town in some ways. But um, but I, I don't know if it's uh, scaled up to the extent that um, that we've seen what happens. <laughs> um, because, like I think I think it's too it's too individualized right now. It's too spread out. It's too diffuse. Um, to um, and I and no doubt uh, like there are. Um, there are losses, right? Like you would, you, like if you, um, there, 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 there advantages people don't want to give up. Um, and, uh, uh, coming up with this whole, you know, mythology, uh, to justify them is, is one way they're trying to hold on to, uh, these, these certain, um, advantages. Uh, so I think that's really proving, you know, really, really like validating your point that there's, um, something that's lost when you, when you, when you open up instead, instead of being so tight fisted around, around that. Um, but I think what I would like to see happen is like for it to be scaled up for these like non-racist, for these like people who give up these like racist practices to be scaled up in, in such a way that, um, that it's, it's, it tests how people react or don't react. Um, to to them. I'm thinking it through though. This is these are good questions. I'm I'm sorry. Like these are these. I'm thinking it through as I as I talk because this is these are very thoughtful and I appreciate it. Yes. Just just my last question, just to clarify, um, because my my question is, um, would it be more accurate that power is not something that white people necessarily inherited or inherited because usually that's like something in the past but that ultimately the power that they have is based on things that they're doing right now and Mm. things that they're willing to do right now and things rewards that they get for what they're willing to do right now and if they don't do them they won't get any of that power or any of those other things and that was my last question i'll meet my life thank you thank you and i i hear that like sort of like I, when I mean inherited power, I mean like 
when you're born into a racist society as a white person, you're born with privilege, right? You're born with this, this like advantage based on this false system. And, uh, and I, and I hear what you're saying, which I agree with, which is that your actions day to day, um, renew that power unless, unless you choose otherwise. Much obliged, Ivy. Uh, we had another caller in Canada, Global System. I uh, just had uh, one I had mandatory. So we got to circle back. So now you've had a little time. Racist joke. Have you thought of one? I did hear this. Is not quite a, it's not quite a joke, but it's what people would say as a joke. I mean, it's not a... Here's, I mentioned the community I came from that was largely white was called St. Joseph, and the one that was uh, largely black and was uh, called a Benton Harbor. One of the go-to phrases to describe Benton Harbor in St. Joe was to call it, quote, Benton Harlem. And, um, and uh, the poorer street in St. Joe where I lived was called... Um, the St. Joe ghetto, these like this sort of racialized um, language that was, I heard reiterated in a joking tone, like, ha ha, how hilarious and clever we are that um, unwittingly, <laughs> I think reveals um, how the way our communities were um, organized were, was a manifestation of this broader pattern of separate un- unequal cities. Hmm. Uh, we often have a number of whites who talk about uh, the privilege that they have. Uh, we had Dr. Peggy McIntosh as a guest on the program. She wrote The Invisible Knapsack with mm-hmm. White Privilege. Uh, what I find to be more telling, what are the ways that white people practice racism? Uh, you as a white woman, uh, you're not a child or a teenager. So if you can think back on your life experience, can you think of one way that you have actually practiced racism white supremacy against a non-white person that's a good question um okay can i can i tell you one of my earliest conscious thoughts that was absolutely racist um when i it was when i was in third grade and i and i reflected on it um as i got older and um and i'm sure it shaped my actions even though i can't describe the actions um uh, right now, but I remember um, I was in this uh, like a Sunday school class CCD, and there were uh, three girls in it, and it was maybe nine boys. And uh, there was among the uh, all the people were white except for one girl, and w- the third girl was another white girl who was um, very overweight. And I remember. Uh, at some point, our third grade class was like meeting up, like being paired with eighth graders, you know, um, like an eighth grader would come in and pick a little third grader that was going to be kind of their buddy for something. And um, I remember the first eighth grade girl like comes out and she picks me to be her buddy. And I felt glad and flattered. And the thought that went through my head, as I recall, was, quote, that's because I'm the normal one. And that's, I I consciously remember thinking that and assuming, first of all, that as an eighth grade girl, she would only uh, uh, pick a girl to be her buddy and uh, thinking myself uh, as more normal than the other two girls 
um, was something I'm really ashamed about, honestly. And, um, and, and in terms of, you know, and there was definitely a racial dynamic in that. So it makes me sad, but it's, that was a literal conscious thought and is, uh, I think revealing too of how early this gets into your head. These, like, these, um, these, uh, attitudes that, um, Take take shape in that 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 take shape in real life behaviors and that accumulate over time in dangerous ways. Oh, I feel so sad um, about that. But it was it was <laughs> conscious thought. Oh, <laughs> I hear laughter. Uh, I, I was I appreciate that uh, for a number of reasons. Number one, uh, on this broadcast, it is said regularly. I think we say this about as often as we say reading is more important than watching television. It is said racist woman, racist man, racist child. Third grade. I think that's like eight. Generally speaking, that's pretty young. It's Uh, pretty young. We have a number of those anecdotes of white children being invited. Matter of fact, that's all throughout in uh, sundown towns, a lot of times it would be white talk about inheriting. He has so many passages in sundown towns where it's white children. They are the ones who are out with their rocks and oh, it's not even slingshots. It's uh, it's nigger shoot. I forgot the name for it, but it's, it's uh, they were not called slingshots. They were called nigger shooters uh, or so it was nigger something. I have to go back and look at it, but uh, they were the enforcement end of you're not supposed to be in St. Joseph's. You're, you're supposed to be in Benton, Harlem. Get out of here. We'll rock you to death. We'll stone you. Get out of here, niggers. They would be, it would be white children. Uh, we've read so many of those. Racist woman, racist man, racist child. You cannot. Same thing I said before. When, whenever white people, when they come with that nonsense, and that's the minimum I can call it. When they come with that nonsense that white people are ignorant about racism or they're willfully ignorant. Man, the children don't even seem to be ignorant about racism. Anyway, before I get our Canadian caller, you were going to do that workshop with Harry Day Washington that got canceled because of the Chinese virus. Like, man, if we have behaved and been professional, you said you've learned something, got some good questions, got some good insight from the book. Man, oh, man, the next time you chatted up with her, man, you should really see if you can work it out in your schedule to be on the cows because we have played email tag for years <laughs> like trying to get her on the program this is goes back to medical apartheid it uh I a, believe ter- it. a terrible thing to waste didn't even exist and now with that it's like oh man i would have to you know fight over which book i would even want to talk about but you should be a huge advocate <laughs> to come on the program and chat it up we are huge fans we recommend her book books plural all the time mm-hmm. uh caller in canada did you have questions for miss clark Oh, hi. Hi, Ms. Clark. Hello. Um, I, I have a question. Um, has there been a time that you noticed that another white person was practicing racism against a non-white person and you decided to intervene? Yes. I, I, in my 20s, I spent a few years in Boston living in... Um, an intentional community called Haley House, which is kind of like a, I, I, I describe it shorthand as an urban commune. It's many things, which is more than I can describe here. But in our home, we had a, 
um, what we considered a radical soup kitchen, which is meant that it was um, non-institutional. It didn't have a police presence or a metal detector. It was more, um, it had a, besides providing meals, it was meant to, um, you know, uh, sort of subversively connect people who wouldn't normally connect with each other. Anyway, um, there was um, some of the guys who would come in in the morning would um, um, be very, uh, like, you could see a lot of these, like, racist practices, like, take shape in our kitchen. And it's our responsibility, um, the, the community in the house, like, um, to, uh, to directly intervene there because um, this is our home and it's also just a responsibility as a person, right? So, so um so I, I do remember there's this one guy, his name was Neil. He was the, the white guy. The, he had the, uh, this like kind of curly hair. And actually the people he was being racist towards were um, people in our community who were black, a, a family. They're a couple and a very young son. And, um, and, and he used, you know, just, just terrible language um, to describe them when he was um, mad about something. I think he was asked to, like I think Danny, the um, lady, like asked him to just uh, to uh, shift to another table because of overcrowding, something really innocuous like that, and he just like spewed this um, um, uh, very toxic language. And I rem- and I remember, and she can, you know she can handle herself in many ways too. But I, I, I it was my job as like the vibe person to. Um, which is what we called it, uh, the vibe person to, 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 to intervene. And we had to ask him, uh, to leave and to set certain conditions on that, like how he couldn't come back until there was some process for, um, acknowledgement and amends, some kind of reparations, right. You know, so some kind of, you know, um, uh, context. And this ended up, it ended up being a much longer process than you could possibly imagine. But, um, that was one way it was kind of unusually structured in this, in this case, but it was like, you know, try, getting this guy to settle down and get out of the kitchen. Um, and to be very clear that this was like a boundary that was, um, crossed both with them as an individual into this community we were trying to create, um, in our, in our home was, um, too much. Okay. Um, can I ask you, uh, can I ask you another question? Of course. Um, when was the first time that you became aware that there was a system of racism and that non-white people were treated differently than you were? Well, I have two different answers to that. Like one, kind of like that sort of story when I was just in third grade, becoming aware of difference happened very young. Um, and uh, But becoming uh having my, um, becoming more cognizant of the broader systemic injustice and my own place in it and all, uh, all this, like that began to happen when I was like in my early twenties, 19, basically college age, um, for a few different reasons. Like one, um, that's when I began, um, spending a lot of time in prisons and jails and getting a larger sense of the sort of larger systemic problems of mass incarceration and um also i was i went to school at the university of michigan which was embroiled in um the affirmative action trials while i was there and as a budding journalist i was covering them for the um uh school paper so it was like had this like front row seat to these like really um heated debates about um race opportunity um 
uh, of uh, all all that 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 comes up with when you talk about affirmative action, and um, and I do remember this like. It wasn't this, it wasn't, I remember this one sort of light bulb moment. It, I wouldn't say this is like, oh, I figured everything out. I mean, it sort of accumulated over time, but there was one way that somebody phrased something that just set off a light bulb for me where it's just like very plainly said um, that how that if we agree that we live in a world of finite resources and we agree that white people have um, um, excess advantage <laughs> of, of uh, over those resources, um, unearned, you know, um, access to those resources, then you have to agree that like white people have to give up some of that advantage in order for there to be justice. You know, um, he put it much more pithily than that, but that's that when he sort of made that like connection, just very literal, it just went like, Oh, of course. Like I was just like, yeah, that makes total sense. Of course. That's what that, that's what needs to happen. And, you know, I still had a lot more to learn at that point. I still have a lot more to learn now, but that was one very clear moment where, I began to articulate in my mind these questions um, in a new way. Thank you. Thank you. I think we got Hi, Jeff. Uh, we had one other person who hadn't been able to ask a question yet. Let me get there. Uh, the caller May at, I be heard? The caller at 4499, is that you? Yes. Proceed. Uh, I have a question. Uh, did white supremacists marry or adopt their victims? Metaphor. Can I, yeah. Can you, can, do you mind, do you mind saying a little bit more about that? That's an interesting question. I just want to make sure I understand. Why is it they choose to call or title terrorism? when it's done to non-white people, domestic terrorism. Like, why do they choose to call it domestic terrorism? Correct. Only when non-white people are victimized. Oh. I hear what you're saying. Um, Well, I don't know, but I can tell is that, you know, I can, I mean, I I can see a running theme in this program is the importance of language and precision and and how things are described. And so um, I think that's, yeah, worth paying attention to. I mean, I think I I don't, I don't know. I don't have, I don't have a a small, um, you know, quick answer for you, but um I'm thinking about my quiet is me thinking about it for a second. I mean, I think white supremacy is terrorism, right? I mean, it is terrorism. My question is why is it domestic when it's done to non-white people? Like, and, and, and you're thinking you're making the connection to domestic, like, um, the implication being uh, home, like we're all in the same home, we're all in the same family, like domestics, like like domestic violence is you're kind of making, and, and you're saying that it shouldn't be called domestic terrorism because um, well, if you people haven't been brought in into same, the home. Well, if you say in the same home, I would say this universe is a home for us all to live in, mm-hmm. and maybe a universal terrorism would be a better title. 
I'd go with that. Did you have another question, sir, or was that it? That's it. Thank you, sir. Oh, okay. Much obliged. Uh, Miss Clark, uh, you are a journalist and an author. You have editors for your reports, uh, your books, yes? Uh, if I'm lucky, I do, for sure. Okay. <laughs> if I'm lucky, I have a good one. Okay. And words are important. Yes, sometimes that's a big part of editing, is you're changing words and trying to pick the best word to articulate your thoughts yes that's true words are important be in toronto did you have another question you want to get in yes thank you so kindly um so uh anna um i had two quick questions for you i've um uh, been noticing that you've been using the words privilege advantage um uh to describe um uh whiteness or being white. So my first part of the question is, does being a part of a community that has committed global genocide, um, that continues to mistreat uh, non-whites or those they have deemed as non-white, that have created um, a, a lot of the catastrophes, including um, the environmental racism, would you consider those as privileges? I mean, I know the, the, the crime itself isn't the privilege, but the benefits resulting from the crime are the privilege. So then if I understand, well, then I, I go into a third one real quickly. So if I understand similar to say a, a child molester is, um, you know, uh, molesting children, um, then would that be comparable to them saying that the benefits from the crime is a privilege? Like, how does, how does that work? Well, I mean, like, for example, colonialism is, is, has been a terrible, uh, crime and the pillaging of, 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 whole nations and whole communities of their natural resources and their, and all their lives and stuff like that is an absolute, uh, crime. Um, the wealth it generated that, um, uh, benefited families in the, you know, colonizing nations. Um, uh, that's the, 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 the advantages that they got from that. Sometimes that, you know, often at a very, you know, keeping, keeping the, keeping the messiness like very far away, you know, you know, imagining that they had nothing to do with it. Um, but they still got the, the, the benefits of, of, of the extracted resources. So like, and that, and that, and that perpetuates over time, like, in, you know, given passed down among the generations. And that's that's a very interesting answer that you provided because essentially the community that you say that you're a part of as a white woman um, through criminal acts benefits from their crimes. So essentially, as you being a part of the community, you've also benefited from those crimes, right? Yeah, I don't like it, but it's it's just a fact. Okay, and then the last question is, um, I hear the word inherited. 
So who bestowed this privilege or inheritance for the white community to exact their criminal, um, several criminal uh, deeds onto non-white people? I'm not sure who the patient zero is. I don't know if I know enough to be able to pinpoint that, but I do understand that it was, um, um, it didn't, it wasn't just like one bead that got passed down across the generations. It accumulated over um, time, like it, other per- ensuing generations added to it more beads, right? That, that get um, added down so that, um, that um, uh, uh, kind of calcifies these systems uh, of, of power and um, unearned benefit that people who are uh, born into this, um, uh, the, I guess, uh, white people into white power structures, um, uh, effectively like step into. Mm, I, I, I think that it's, it's been misunderstood my question. I'm, I'll, I'll re-ask it again. Um, since the, since you've used the word inherited and I'm, I'm not looking for a, a patient zero, um, whatever that means. Um, I'm looking for who or what entity had bestowed this power of the white community to claim privilege, claim inheritance over the criminal activities that they've done that they've now called benefits, privileges, and, and advantages. And and I and I guess it's kind of the same answer in that I don't know where the like complete and total origin is um but i uh but i as i understand it like it it passes forward through time accumulating greater power over time and kind of as suggested by you know an earlier co- uh caller um you you get you inherit um you might you may inherit privileges um these unearned privileges uh, just by being born white into these white power structures. And as you grow older, you, you make choices about whether or not to renew it um, every day or to uh, actively dismantle it, actively reject it. So in other words, you do not know where this entity came from to bestow this type of power, so to speak, onto white people to do this to non-white people and to the earth. Well, I mean, I, I mean, I, I mean, white people chose it, of course, you know, I know that. And, and then white supremacy has been with us for centuries. So, um, uh, it's been a global force for centuries and I, you know, I, 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 and I, and it accelerates and accumulates, but yeah, I, I mean, I don't know, like outside of knowing in general that like white communities actively chose it. Um, I'm not sure what was the, you know, sort of initial construct of that. That I don't know what form it took in its very first form. Oh, okay. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Much obliged to be in Toronto. Uh, I want to let uh, Miss Clark 
exit so she can enjoy the rest of her evening and us as well. Uh, Ivy, did you have something that can be done in like 30 seconds? Quick question. <laughs> Um, yes, um, thinking of Tamir Rice and Flynn and college hangings and postcards and people, um, us being murdered on video and things of that nature, why are white people so sadistic in their practice of racism? That was it. Yeah, that's, honestly, that's kind of the perfect question to end it, and because that gets at the root of everything. Um, I think... I think there is, um, like, some of it is pure cruelty. Some of it is um, completely dysfunctional perceptions of, of, of that uh, completely dysfunctional perceptions of of people who are um, different than them that uh, create this sort of toxic knee jerk and racist fear. Um, Part of it is uh, like and fear to be clear of like of their own loss of advantage and loss of power. Um, I think that there's um, I think it's been fed by seeing by by people um, pretending that things are siloed one off incidences or um, that rather than seeing it as a larger pattern, I think um that is very crucial. You know, it can't be just shunted off to a couple of bad actors or that one bad cop or whatever. I mean, we got to see the larger pattern here um, to um, the, the, the sadism in this um, structure that makes these not rare occurrences, but parts like the daily lived experience of, of way too many people. Um, yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of the heart at what happened in the, at the examples of, that you described and certainly um, with Flint too. Uh, excuse me, Gus, could I just ask one more question? Nope. Hanging up. We got all our <laughs> listeners and it's lots of folks on the line. Um, I wanted to make sure I got in before you depart, Ms. Clark. Thank you so much for your uh, patience and what have you. Uh, you said that uh, you gave example, right? You being a third grader, I'm the normal one. That word gets, uh, analyzed mm-hmm. a lot in this content where it's important normal whites that is pretty consistent worldwide uh and you benefiting from the criminal enterprise uh of white supremacy racism even getting to hang out in a uh some uh, a white residence uh while you did your research for your book the poison city uh in flint's racists in your family uh in your racist town uh <laughs> given Benton harlem uh and all the rest of it uh given all that and probably a lot more that we didn't even get to uh would it be accurate to say that you anna clark are a racist white supremacist uh with a definition racist white supremacist a white person who directly indirectly mistreats anyone classified as not white consciously unconsciously directly, indirectly mistreat someone because they are not white. I am certain that there, that, that, uh, that a lot of that is true. Yes. I mean, I think that there's, um, it's been, it's a lot, that's what I mean about it being a lifelong unlearning process is that I think, um, one can, one can, make progress and uh it's it like being a racist is not inevitable it is accumulation of choices and um 
I, I, I hope and that I can continue, um, excavating that and unlearning that, um, because it does cause harm to people. But I do think that there's like in a racist society, um, that there, um, that it, and, and given how young it, these things like incul- inculcate, is that the right word? In, into your brain. I, I just think it would be dishonest of me and arrogant of me to pretend that I don't, that I, that, that I am not at all a racist, that I'd never done anything, that I'd never do anything, um, out of, unconscious bias or anything like that that causes uh actual harm to people and i think that's um i think it's important to acknowledge as a white person and i think it's a conversation white people need to have with other white people uh much more often Mm. last one Uh, i have a compensatory investment request uh since you are a white woman uh it sounded like even though i guess make sure (laughs) You're just saying just buckets and buckets of words. It sounded like from what I got there, even though it did sound like we, we got some pussyfooting with the answer. If we got a yes, uh, if you are a white woman admitted racist, benefiting from racism, having practiced racism, will probably do so again uh, at some point. Uh, not answering questions directly, in my view, is one way that white people practice racism, white supremacy deliberately. Uh, but I have a compensatory investment request. Uh, I would like to request, given the subject matter that we've discussed this evening and the seriousness of the global pandemic, uh, water test strips, water test kits. Uh, We talked about that in Harriet A. Washington's book. That was one of her recommendations. Test your water. Find out what you're working with. And then you can go and do research. She had that big section about water filters uh, and what have you. I feel like that is pretty easy. Uh, I would like to request... Uh, just to give away to, to black people to test their water to be serious. You said environmental racism, like that's one of the things that white people can do to work against racism. Uh, 40 water test kits um, so that I can just give them away or mail them to black people. Uh, is that something that you can provide? 40 water test kits. It honestly isn't something I can afford, but what I can tell you is that I do think you know, in line with this sort of compensatory thing um, and in line with what my responsibility is to not create um, my responsibilities as a journalist who tries to do things like ethically uh, the where I've donated a proceeds of my book has been uh, the Flint Public Library, which serves uh, the community and especially children really well. And um, and that's that's a lifelong thing that wasn't just like a one-time thing. So um, I'm sorry I can't afford to offer the tests as well because, like you say, they're very literal, but especially right now, especially with being a single self-supporting person with an irregular income and no benefits, and I think I honestly can't afford much right now. All right. Do you do any paid talks for uh, the Poison City? I did last year, and not anymore, though. <laughs> Hmm. I, I suspect COVID will end one of these days. Uh, we will not be and on that house much arrest. Goes to, and that money goes to the Flint Public Library. I'm sorry? Like I, give, I give a portion of what I do to the Flint Public Library. That's where that goes. I see. I see. Chemical biological warfare. We've been chatting it up. Anna Clark, the poisoned city. 
lots to evaluate around Flint. Uh, again, I would say it's a great illustration of uh, deception. Lots of different ways, not just someone telling you that one plus one is five deception, but the deception, as I said, your sandwich has got rat poison in it. I could tell you before you take a bite or I could wait until you get sick and then come in. I think something might have been maybe I'm not quite sure. I didn't want to say anything too soon. Lots of deception uh, in lots of different ways with the Flint water crisis. Uh, much obliged for sharing a bit of your uh, Monday evening with us, although I guess a lot of us didn't have many other options. So, But I still <laughs> appreciate you uh, hanging out, answering a few questions. Uh, Miss Anna Clark, Clark, sorry, author of The Poisoned City. Thank you much. Thank you very much. And thank you to you. Thanks to you and your listeners for engaging so deeply with this stuff. I, I really appreciate it. That is the goal. Uh, try to be honest, accurate in the conversation. Uh, we will definitely, she writes a lot, Ms. Clark does. So you can keep an eye out. Just visit her website. It's linked in the description. Uh, check out some of her uh, independent journalism, uh, other topics about things happening in Michigan, maybe even racism. Uh, we will keep an eye out. Uh, take excellent care. And uh, thank you again for your time and energy, Ms. Clark. I can't wait to tune in to tune in when Harriet Washington is on. Sure, I'll call too. in. Me too. Me too. <laughs> Put Thank in a good very- word for us. Put in a good word for us. Indeed. Much obliged, Miss Clark. We will talk. Context of white supremacy. Uh, there. Oh man, I was going to say. Uh, 60 Minutes, they, uh, folks know, right? Well, I guess everybody's not in the States. So they have this program called 60 Minutes. It's been on for a really long time, probably longer than uh, a lot of the people on this uh, program have been alive, like very long time. So it's a news program. It comes on uh, on Sundays, and they've probably done like many, many segments on the Flint water crisis. If you go online and check, they have a lot of their archives, uh, television program, but they have a lot of their archives available online. So not this past Sunday, but the Sunday before last, uh, like March 15th, uh, they had like a 10 minute segment uh, on Flint. And they had some of the same folks that uh, Miss uh, Clark talked about in the book. And it, I thought it was fascinating. Like, wow, I didn't even know. I don't watch 16 minutes all the time. I do try to check it out. I should do better. Shame on Gus. But I watched it before the program. I watched it in the middle of reading this book. I was like, oh, my gosh. Uh, and I was almost going to play it for the introduction, but it was a little long. But I said, man, I can slip it in kind of at the end. And then if folks have a card or two, then we'll wrap things up. I'll make sure I get it in because I thought it was important. And it was talking about we talked about that experiments. She had that in the book. She said it's like they're treating us like lab rats with, you know, what the effects of this is going to be and how it's going to impact the children. And we don't even know. We kind of have to see what's going to happen. That is exactly. They were just talking about all this uh, on 60 minutes. It's like 10 minutes, but man, it just pay attention. And then we'll take the last 10 and folks have things that they want to make sure they uh, get to. Uh, thoughts, questions, things that were of interest. But this is just from last week before everything became about uh, the Chinese virus. 60 Minutes, March 15. You can go online and check it out. Uh, But this is their uh, coverage. It's about 10 minutes and talking about the experimentation uh, of what type of damage. And they're talking about black children, not just poor children, not poor white children. What is the damage long term that's going to be done to poor black children? Context of white supremacy. You may remember the pictures from the water crisis five years ago in Flint, Michigan. Hundreds of angry residents holding up bottles of rust-colored water and demanding answers. 
Months of protests were waved off by officials who denied anything was wrong. The turning point came when a local pediatrician found conclusive proof that the children of Flint were being exposed to high levels of lead in their water and prompted the state to declare an emergency. Now, that same doctor is working to solve a mystery that still worries parents in Flint. What lasting damage did the water do to their kids? Tonight, you will hear her initial findings, which she says are worse than she feared. But we begin with the legacy of Flint's water crisis. Once a week, hundreds of cars line up for bottled water at the Greater Holy Temple Church of God in Flint. You know you're too old to be driving. Come on. Where's your sticker, baby? Sandra Jones is in command. She is a pastor's wife. God bless. With the voice of a four-star general. Let him go. Don't talk to him. Come around me. He's 90. Take his number. We're going to find a way to deliver to him. Just Jones keeps the cars moving. <laughs> you almost got my toes. <laughs> and the water coming. Each family is allowed four cases of water. On this day, they gave away 36,000 bottles. It just strikes me. It's been five years and you're still doing this. Five years. And the thing about it is, it's not lightening up. Yeah. I could see it if it was lightening up, but it isn't. All right. It is not. The state stopped giving away bottled water two years ago because it said the water is safe. Sandra Jones relies on donations of water. What's it been like? It's been kind of hard. Larry Marshall was second in line. The widowed father of four got here at 5 a.m. He's been waiting five hours for water. Water should be a basic necessity that we shouldn't have to wait or stand in line for. You know, this is not a third world country, but we're living like that. Marshall, like many in Flint, still refuses to drink tap water. And if they come to you, the city or the state, and they say, you're, you're drinking water safe, are you going to believe them? No. They lie so much, and we know they lie. And I... I when they say something, it's like uh, talking to the wind, you know. I don't believe nothing they say. None of the politicians, none of them. Flint, once a prosperous hub of the American auto industry, was nearly bankrupt back in 2014. Officials hoped to save money by switching the city water source from the Great Lakes to the Flint River. Clean water, Flint! Almost immediately, residents began noticing something wasn't right. The water was rust-colored, and many people had rashes. What do we want? Clean water! What do we want? But Michigan's Department of Environmental Quality and the city insisted the water in Flint is safe. Later, a state investigation found those officials hid the fact that the river water was not treated with chemicals that would prevent the pipes from corroding. So for months, the water ate away at Flint's old pipes, releasing lead into residents' tap water. They were poisoned. I mean, they were poisoned by this water. They, they, they were all exposed to toxic water. Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha is a pediatrician in Flint who her patients call Dr. Mona. Dr. Mona is a bit of a superhero herself here because she was the first to link the water to high levels of lead in the children of Flint. So within a few months of of being on this water, General Motors, which was born in Flint and still has plants in Flint, 
noticed that this water, our drinking water, was corroding their engine parts. Let's just pause. Like, the drinking water was corroding engine parts. So they were allowed to go back to Great Lakes water. Didn't anybody at that point say, if it's corroding an engine, maybe this shouldn't be going into our bodies and to our kids? I mean, that should have been like fire alarm bells, like red flags. So what did it take before your, it, your eyes opened about this? Yeah, it, it, it was the word lead. Because the word lead, when you're a physician or a pediatrician, signals what in your brain? There is no safe level of lead. We're never supposed to expose a population or a child to lead because we can't do much about it. It is an irreversible neurotoxin. It attacks the core of what it means to be you. It impacts cognition, um, how children think, actually drops IQ levels. It impacts behavior, leading to things like developmental delays, and it has these life-altering consequences. In 2015, Dr. Mona and a colleague started digging through blood test records of 1,700 Flint children, including the kids she sees at the Hurley Children's Clinic. Ready? Okay. The nonprofit clinic serves most of Flint's kids. The city is 53% black and has one of the highest poverty rates in the country. So we looked at the children's blood levels before the water switch, and we compared them to children's blood levels after the water switch. And in the areas where the water lead levels were the highest, um, in those parts of the city, we saw the greatest increase in children's lead levels. Armed with the first medical evidence that kids were being exposed to lead from the water, Dr. Mona did something controversial. She quickly held a press conference to share the blood test study before other doctors reviewed her work. So it was a bit of an academic no-no, um, kind of a form of academic disobedience. Um, but I you li- knew that. I, I knew that, but, like, but there was no choice. There was no way I was going to wait um, to have this, this research vetted. Two weeks later, Michigan Governor Rick Snyder ordered the water switched back to the Great Lakes and declared a state of emergency. I say tonight, as I have before, I am sorry and I will fix it. But the damage was done. Dr. Mona estimates 14,000 kids in Flint under the age of six may have been exposed to lead in their water. I never should have had to do the research that literally used the blood of our children as detectors of environmental contamination. Three years after the crisis began, the percentage of third graders in Flint who passed Michigan's standardized literacy test dropped from 41% to 10%. I'm very concerned about my children. And not only my children, but I'm concerned about the children of Flint. Kenyatta Dotson is still fearful of the water, even though the state is spending more than $300 million to fix the water system. The city promised to replace all 12,000 supply lines that may have been contaminated with lead by last fall. Now they say the work won't be done until summer. Dotson says she and her daughters will continue to use bottled water for cooking and brushing their teeth. I need time to come back to a place where I feel whole again. You don't feel whole right now? Oh, no. Would this have happened in a rich white suburb? Maybe it would have happened in in a rich white suburb. Would it have continued for as long as it has? I don't believe so. We found many parents in Flint 
still bathe their young children with bottled water, first warmed on the stove, then brought to the tub. When I'm in clinic, um, almost every day a mom asks me, is my kid going to be okay? So that's the number one kind of anxiety and How do you answer that? Uh, I, I sit down, I sometimes hold their hand, and I reassure my, my patients and their parents, just as I would before the crisis, to, to keep doing everything that you're supposed to be doing to promote your children's development. The Flint Registry is now live. In January of 2019, she launched the Flint Registry, the first comprehensive look at the thousands of kids exposed to lead in Flint. The goal of the federal and state-funded program is to track the health of those kids and get them the help they need. So today is um, the final day of his assessment. The registry refers hundreds of kids to specialists who conduct eight hours of neuropsychological assessments of their behavior and development. Dr. Mona shared her preliminary findings with 60 Minutes. Before the crisis, about 15% of the kids in Flint required special education services. But of the 174 children who went through the extensive neuro exams, specialists determined that 80% will require help for a language, learning, or intellectual disorder. What are you going to do? There's not much we can do. So there's no magic pill, there's no antidote, there's no cure. We can't take away this exposure. But incredible science has taught us that there's a lot that we can do to promote the health and development of children. And that's exactly what we're doing. Through the registry, already 2,000 Flint children who are exposed to lead have been connected to services such as speech and occupational therapy, which some may need for the rest of their lives. But we also realized that our research, our science, this data and facts was also an underestimation of the exposure. Why underestimated? Because we were looking at blood lead data done as part of these surveillance programs, which are done at the ages of, of one and two. Lead in water impacts a younger age group. Um, it impacts the unborn. Do you have any questions? To determine that impact, Dr. Mona turned to a novel technique developed by Dr. Manish Arora at New York's Mount Sinai Hospital. He examines baby teeth. Baby teeth begin to grow in utero. Just like growth rings in trees, every day a tooth forms a ring. And anything that we're exposed to in our diet, what we eat, what we breathe, what we drink, gets trapped in those growth rings. A laser cuts through the tooth to analyze whether lead is embedded in the growth rings of teeth. Dr. Mona has sent teeth from 49 Flint kids to be analyzed. This was a scan on the tooth of a child who was six months old when the water source switched in Flint. As we hit that six-month mark where oh the water, water supply was changed, you can, see how, you can see how the lead levels go up and then they just keep, keep going up as more and more lead's entering the body. It shoots straight up. Wow. For the first time, researchers can pinpoint to the day, even before birth, when a child was exposed to lead from the water and at what levels. Those early years are a critical time for brain development. You're taking giant steps. As we were following Dr. Mona's work in Flint, another American city was forced to hand out cases of water. Testing on the drinking water in Newark, New Jersey, found lead levels four times higher than the federal limit. In some places, higher than Flint. 
Newark officials were warned about its water more than two years ago. Newark, New Jersey is like living Flint all over again. If we cannot guarantee that all kids get have access to safe drinking water, not just privileged kids, but all kids have access to safe drinking water, um, and that's just one issue. Like, who are we? This is not isolated to Flint. This is an everywhere story. This is an America story. Last month, we made another visit to Flint to check in with Sandra Jones. Okay, let's move them out. Y'all moving too slow. Let's move them out. Y'all need to keep up with him. That's it. That's the way you do that. She was still in command despite temperatures in the single digits. Come on, hop out. Hundreds in Flint are still coming to her church parking lot for their weekly supply of water, more than five years after the crisis began. Sixty minutes. That was just uh, like not even ten days ago, like eight days ago, just eight days ago. Uh, that was on sixty minutes. Can you imagine? Now we're in the middle of lockdown. That's what Miss Clark said that the governor just put the state on. So now we're in lockdown, and I still don't quite trust the water. Now what? <sighs> Chemical and biological warfare. Uh, did folks that are with us? Any thoughts on what they heard our time with Miss Clark? Uh, this segment, brain damage. How could I forget? We did all that time on Harriet A. Washington, a terrible thing to waste. Brain damage. Did you hear what they said? That 80% of the children tested are going to need some sort of help with their cognitive functions, chemical and biological warfare. Brain damage. She said that repeatedly, Harriet A. Washington, in a terrible thing to waste. Brain Damage, a terrible thing to waste. Any of the folks that are with us have comments? Uh, yes, can I hear? Oh, go. You you could go ahead, sir. Thank you, sir. Uh, yes, uh, as I was hearing that uh, sixty minutes account, uh, my mind uh, goes to uh, a. Uh, famous trial in uh, Nuremberg, Germany, about 75 years ago, where uh, all of the quote-unquote defendants were white people, and uh, the popular uh, offense was identified as crimes against humanity. And uh, to make a uh, juxtapose uh, with that particular incident 75 years ago and what is still happening in Flint, Michigan today, uh, I would say that it's probably something, if not exact or something very close to a crime against humanity. Uh, that that's, that's it. Just oh. a thought. Much obliged, sir. Caller in Canada. And um, yeah, I just wanted um, when the when the guest was talking about privilege, um, I thought to myself, well, the system of racism, white supremacy, is not about privilege. It's about indirect, direct violence. So, so when 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 um, when the people who practice racism dominate and mistreat and subjugate non-white people it's 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 war 
privilege imp- implies like somebody has a choice. Someone's been giving someone's been giving a choice to do something. When people practice racism, it's 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 an act. It's a violent act, and it harms people. And there's so much of a disconnect between you know how the people who practice racism behave. They are it's it's like they're just thinking about oh oh we call someone you know some kind of negra you know he's a negra she's a negra and then oh it hurts their feelings but it's more than that it's a whole entire system you you get prevented from jobs you 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 don't get a just trial you know it's it's so much more than that and also i just wanted to add 20 years ago here in canada there's there's a place called walkerton ontario and then there was an e coli breakout in the water supply and at the time there was um there was there's a there's there was a premier of ontario his name was mike harris i think um b b from toronto might 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 be um aware of the story anyway 20 years uh, ago two people died because in in walkerton ontario people drank contaminated um water and then so there was a big hubbub in the government and people were filing lawsuits a lot of white people were getting really upset about it and it turns out that the guy was related to the premier and he, and he had no training of how to run how to run the water plant and you know it, that it was really big 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 news so it was just and um i guess just to make it short um it was fixed you know right away quickly you know and there was lawsuits and there were settlements and you know and then it went back back to business as uh usual that's it white lives are valued worldwide uh i was when b spoke up uh about the pollution which she called it cuz we had a number of folks in canada dial in and I was thinking uh, the community of widows, because we played that segment, I think, at the beginning of the last segment in our book club. Uh, that's up in Canada. Same thing. Black people dumped all kinds of poisons and toxins on them. And you got all these black people with cancer and called the community of widows because this seems to be ethnocentric poisoning where it has killed off the black male. So they've got all these cancers and all that. So now you just have all of these uh, black females who don't have their husbands or brothers and sons and all the rest of it. Uh, well, the other folks who are with us uh, comments, they wanted to make sure they got in uh, what they heard from Miss Clark, Miss Clark, author of the poisoned city uh, or the 60 minute segment, which I thought was pretty fascinating as well. Ivy, yes, ma'am. Thanks, Gus, for um, letting me um, ask another question. Um, She didn't answer B in Toronto's question at all. B asked her, is it a privilege if you rape a child and you get, I don't know, whatever you steal from that act of terrorism? She just redirected the question and redirected the focus. She shifted the focus back to um, 
to to racism. And she started talking about colonialism uh, from back in the day, something about Africa or something like that. But that that exact um, example that she gave about child molestation, child rape, she didn't she didn't answer that. Um, I suspect because it it truly reveals truth and, and speaks to the point that we're not talking about uh we're not talking about privileges when we're talking about acts of terrorism when you when you get stuff from that that's that's not that's not a privilege that's a crime ultimately and you, and you talk and then on top of that you're talking about stolen resources and all that stuff that's not a privilege that's a crime you know what i'm saying you rob a bank and you you take and you get the money that's a crime that's not that's not a privilege that you the money that you got um so yeah i guess that was it. I'm in my line. Thanks, Gus. Thanks, everyone. Much obliged, Ivy. Uh, Dreptomania, uh, did you have comments? I don't think you were with us for questions. Uh, yes. Um, thank you, um, Gus, for taking my call. And um, a very interesting um, uh, guest tonight. Um, I do uh, think that uh, there was lots of um, buckets and buckets of words, um, a lot of applications, like, you know, not getting directly to the point. But, you know, um, overall, I thought it was, um, you know, a pretty good um, uh, interview that you had with her. But you did, you know, you did get her to, um, you know, admit. Um, and just, you know, it just seemed like it was, um, like, pulling teeth for her to admit. Because I guess it was hard for her to acknowledge, you know, um, uh, the fact that she is a uh, racist. Um, but um, I wanted to also comment on the 60-minute uh, clip. I'm originally from North New Jersey, and um, I was just, I mean, I know you talked about on the show um, how North's water supply uh, is, um, you know, was bad, but I had no idea that the water supply was that bad, you know, to the point where they were saying that in some parts of that it's worse than um, Flint, Michigan. And it's just like, you know, it's just sad, you know, and I, I can, you can see, I think it, it, it has to be a correlation of um, lead um, levels and crime. And, you know, you, you already know that the, um, they've proven that with the um, whole um, education and, you know, it causes, um, uh, you know, the brain to develop, um, not to develop correctly. I wonder if they um, if they've ever done any studies in regards to um, lead um, poisoning and um, crime. I was just wondering about that, but um, I'm just um, just totally um, like amazed about how bad the water. Because I know, like as a child, my mother always used to say, "Don't drink the water." You know what I mean? And like we, you know, we wouldn't drink water. So it's like it's it's like truth to you know what she was saying. Is I see now, like, you know, the reason why we shouldn't drink the water because the water was really contaminated, you know, and it's no, there's no telling, you know, growing up in that environment, you know, I'm quite sure the water had to be like this, but, you know, even when I was a child growing up there and such. So I'm just kind of like, um, I'm kind of shocked because it's the first time I ever heard um, a full report on that. And I wanted to know what was the... Um, the, the date in um, the date of that report from 50 minutes and I'll uh, research it and look it up so I can watch it March 15th it was last Sunday March 15th last should... Sunday mm-hmm. okay That's great and thank you guys I appreciate you yes ma'am 
There are lots of reports on Newark as well. It's the same story. The same thing they said in 60 Minutes. They're giving out water. Same thing. You'd be in New- I don't know if they have lockdown or, you know, what their status is in New Jersey, but uh, giving out bottled water and going to meet at, you know, community centers, churches to get water donations and filters and same thing. Same. Lots of black. Same. Th- like painfully. Say, chemical and biological warfare. Lots of black people out struggling, trying to get water again. Same thing. Wow. Same thing. They had the mayor out. Black. Same thing. Black mayor out. We're gonna try and uh, you know get this problem solved, and you know all of that. Same thing. And you know, and I couldn't really, I couldn't even imagine like having to go through something like that. You know what I mean? Like I buy water, bottled water now. Like I don't drink, I haven't drank tap water since I don't, I don't even remember. But I mean, just imagine having to bathe and do everything. Like you know, even when I cook, I cook with the bottled water and everything like that. But imagine to a point where you have to, because I have to buy like a, you know, a pretty large amount of water. You know. But imagine having to bathe in that water too. You, could you imagine how much water you would have to like buy? And these are these people are um, they don't have the resources to even buy the water. They have to get it from people that's giving it to them. So could you imagine having to live like that? The quarantine. <laughs> Add that in for emphasis. Now might not have those centers. You got social distancing, so, you know, we're trying to shut down places. I don't know if that's considered essential or not, but I mean, wow, to even have to think about that under these conditions, like, not just to drink, but to take a bath, like, wow. Oof. Uh, The person uh, 0747, did you have comments or were you just listening? No, I'm good. Oh, okay. Were there other fo- were there other folks observations questions comments they wanted to make sure they got in? Hi, Gus. Be in Toronto. Yes, thank you, and and thank you for allowing me to um, ask uh, those additional questions. Um, it was just quite interesting, uh, Anna's answers on a lot of the caller's questions. Um, she seemed to really try to dance around the issue as opposed to um, actually answer the question directly. Um, and yeah, it, it was just, uh, it was quite eye-opening. Um, uh, now I've, I've learned that um, benefits, privilege, and advantages are um, that of, you know, criminal activity. So that's that's always good to know. I, I I've always known apparently according to their court of law that any proceeds from criminal activity uh, that, that gets confiscated and divested from them. And it's just quite interesting how the white community seems to be able to keep all their resources. But, um, you know, it's business as usual. And I leave the line. Yes, ma'am. That is very common. That's something you have to be mindful about. We talk about that all the time, especially when we have, uh, white guests uh, you'll have, see this sometimes with victims as well but I mean regularly and in my view it is a deliberate means of practicing racism when you have white people you're talking about racism 
they don't answer the question they talk for a long time they talk around it they're using words that sound like they're speaking close to the subject but they really haven't answered your question you have to be very mindful because sometimes they'll pivot out of that and ask you a question or pivot to something totally unrelated you have to be really mindful uh, about that and make sure that you get your question answered at minimum point out you didn't answer my question even if they choose not to do so just pointing that out even to yourself sometimes my question was not answered might have to come back tomorrow and ask again but they did not answer my question that is very important standard operating procedure uh, anybody else have observations questions uh, yeah I guess um, I just wanted to report like the beginning of the program for, well for me it was very choppy I guess and I had to call in like two or three times um, but then like on the third time it was clear yeah I also, I went on her on her site. Like she has images of herself, um, and like images, like an image of her as like a kid and well as a child. Sorry, and she the images are are, are, are she's very happy. Like she's smiling, and it, I thought it, it was kind of it because I didn't think like that the images didn't match like her book. Like, cause I think she's written like other reports, but like she's mainly like um, promoting her book. So it's just like, I thought that her website would be like matching her book. I thought it'd be like images of like tainted water or like, you know, but it, it was just like a happy, like white woman. Yeah. Thanks. Well, at least, you know, immediately who authored the book. Um, no confusion uh, about the uh, source of the information but that I think I did ask her that question about hey you got a white woman coming in here authoring a story about a city that is predominantly black uh, and she even talks about that in the book that a lot of the black act that's the same thing uh, that we're talking about in the book we're reading now Dr. Sylvia Hood Washington where you had a lot of black people who were pointing out these problems with the water uh, and saying that this is messed up and something needs to be done about this we're being poisoned and they were ignored and then you know when it comes celebration time and it's oh let's recognize the people who you know responsible for pointing this out and they went to all non-black people and that was the phrasing that she used in the book non-black people to dump awards and praise and I mean hey some of these folks did do great work but dang there were a lot of black people uh, who were right there in Flint who were calling this out and taking their filthy water uh, into officials and they were rebuffed rejected ignored system of racism white supremacy so that important point when you go to the website you're still not seeing those faces you're seeing Anna Clark in her great shot. I think one of those pictures is at the beach, no less. Water again. Uh, any other comments, observations? Gus, does she, um, what did she say about your, uh, your definition if you, if you said it to her? Because I, I missed the first part of the program. And if she said anything about it, did she mention anything about dedication? Uh, I think that was one where I asked again, where she didn't quite give a definitive response so when I came around the second time to see if it was accurate uh, she said it was accurate um, but yeah the first time she gave a, a she spoke a lot but didn't really speak get directly to uh, is it accurate does it exist but yes after the follow up she did agree or said it was accurate sorry she said it was accurate okay thank you 
Any other questions, observations? Uh, could I just add something? Caller in Canada. Yeah, I think Mr. Fuller always talks about that under the system of white supremacy, non-white people are actually children. So it's like it's like when we're being victimized, we're 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 actually being raped. Like black people are actually literally being raped. So it was it was just a thought that I was thinking because because racism is. It is a criminal act, but it's not really seen as a crime under the system. So, just a thought. Much obliged, our caller in Canada. Uh, that is a metaphor, but I think he means it literally. But I can see how some can take it as a metaphor. But anywho, uh, we will hopefully not be on tomorrow. Uh, so that I can recuperate, refresh, be ready for our Thursday broadcast. Uh, but you can double check the schedule, Black Talk Radio Network Facebook page uh, to see the upcoming schedule. At minimum, we'll be here Thursday for Dr. Sylvia Hood Washington packing them in environmental racism in Chicago. Um, again, uh, for folks wherever you happen to be uh, throughout the planet. Uh, stay as safe as you can uh, with all of the confusion and chaos and contradictory information uh, that is being reported Uh, just try to do the best you can uh, to stay informed and make quality uh, decisions Uh, if you can kind of hunker down for a bit uh, until you can figure out what's what that sounds like it would be solid information Uh, just try to stay safe hopefully have uh, supplies at the ready uh, so that you don't have to be out and about too much. Uh, gun sales are up. Just put it there. Gun sales are up. So can't exactly say it is uh, a bad time to be a little bit more nesting, as they say, in the residence. Do some cooking. Do some reading. Watch a flick or two. Three the hard way. Check that one out if you want to see good old Jim Brown uh, in his acting heyday. Three the hard way. Check that one out. See what it's about. Remind you of anything in Flint. Uh, with that we'll be here on Thursday at minimum I hope it was worthy of your Monday evening particularly under these conditions we got a lot of other things that we could be doing we should not be wasting time on the phone uh, with conversations or programs uh, that are not really of constructive value Uh, we could be doing a lot of things cleaning the residence washing our hands checking the pantry to see you know what the supplies are being constructive uh under these conditions but with that sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy Harriet A. Washington mentioned noxious alcohols repeatedly in a terrible thing to waste when talking about environmental racism and brain damage and how even their noxious alcohols were disproportionately dumped in areas where black people reside sobriety would be best In addition to being sober, let's be buckled every time we are in a vehicle, driver or passenger. In addition to being sober, buckled, if you are driving, you are not on the cell phone at all. Uh, Just trying to minimize any excuse, any reason, especially under these conditions. 
uh, to attract any attention from enforcement officials, race soldiers, badge, or no. With that, Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Much obliged. I forgot to say that Uh, the black African. I had to dial in a bunch of times today as well. Like not five times, like 20 times. uh, I think to get on, it was lots of disruption and it finally worked, but yeah, it was not easy dialing in. I, I don't know if other people had interference dialing, but yeah, it was very troublesome. Uh, trying to get in for the line. I almost thought we were going to be late uh, for the program, but we're able to uh, manage. But thank you for getting that on the record as well. Cal signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, brother. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.